0: Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, humans have made significant transformational changes, which in turn have led to the renaming of periods into ages. You've personally just experienced the information age, and boy, what a ride it's been. Now consider you may be right now living through a transitional page into a new age, the Age of Infinite. An age that is not defined by scarcity and abundance, but by a redefined lifestyle consisting of infinite possibilities and infinite resources, which will be possible through a new construct where the moon and earth, as we call it, mirth, will create a new ecosystem and a new economic system that will transition us into this infinite future. The ingredients for an amazing sci-fi story that will come to life in your lifetime. This podcast has been brought to you by the Project Moonhot Foundation, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon. A Moon Hut, H U T, we were named by NASA, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space based ecosystem, then to turn the innovations and in paradigm shifting thinking from that endeavor back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. If you're interested, there are videos in the top right hand corner at www.projectmoonhut.org where you can learn a little bit more. So, on to our program. Today, we're going to be exploring a fantastic topic unpacking the interactions between environmental hostility and technology dependence. And we have with us an amazing guest, and I will do a, uh, a short bio and then share a little bit about why he's on. Casey Hanmer. Hi Casey, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Hey, okay. Casey is the founder of Terraform Industries, an organization which scrubs CO2 from the atmosphere and uses renewable hydrogen converted to natural gas. Casey has also worked with uh, worked at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Hyperloop One, and he has an unbelievable PhD in theoretical and mathematical physics. Now, why Casey? I, I had watched, I had read an article about uh, Beyond Earth, and it was incredibly well re- well written. And I don't tend to see them. I see uh, there's a lot of hyperbole, a lot of hype, a lot of misdirection, but it was so well written that I reached out to Casey, and at the same time, I reached out one of our team members in Germany, Andreas, and he wrote back, Casey is at the top of my list. And he respected him. And if our team members feel that way, we had to have Casey on. So before we get into the actual content, uh, let me share with you that it's a mis, uh, there's a belief that Casey and I, or any of the guests have spoken about what we're going to talk about today. We have not. We have not had, we had one meeting. And in that interaction, what we did is we created a title. So here it goes. This is the process. We select the guest. The guest watches or listens to some Project Moon Hut material. They might have listened to uh, of the videos or content. Then there's a call where, for example, Casey and I decide on a title. We don't really go into the topic, just the title. Then, and that can last up to three hours. When we're done, Casey goes on his own and I don't hear anything until today. I have no clue where Casey's going to go. So right now in front of me, I have 12 pieces of blank paper. I take notes during the entire program. He and I don't see each other, so I don't see his reactions, he doesn't see mine. And we're both or all of us are going to learn together from Casey. So let's get started. Casey, do you have an outline for us? I do.
1: And you give it to me, please. Okay, if you ask so nicely. Um, I have uh, around about eight points here. Okay. Uh, some of them will be pretty quick and some of them potentially could spool out into 20 hours of conversation. We'll have to see how we go. As, um, I, as so long as you've got enough to drink, we're good. <laughs> I think I'll be okay. Um, so the first point is, let's be humble. The second point is, um, and you can let me know when you're ready as well. Yep, I'm good, uh, number two. is. Is the vision of rugged self-reliance and its limitations? Vision of rugged. Are you G-G-E-D? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Self-reliance and its limitations. Uh, point three is Autaki. A-U-T A-C-Y.
0: A-R-K-Y.
1: Autarki, I never heard of that. Four? We'll, don't worry, we'll define <laughs> it. Nice. Uh, four is, <clears throat> is labor scarcity. Uh, Five is environmental hostility and population stability. Six. Are you ready for point six? Yeah. Six is development prioritization. Seven. The Iceland case study. Great. And then point eight is, depending on what we've already covered, we might want to talk about Starship and the nine missing technologies. Also. All right. Okay, so let's start with number one. So <clears throat> let's be humble. It's kind of the mandatory disclaimer, and even though people have been writing uh, more or less seriously about living in space for almost a hundred years, um, it's important to remember that uh, humanity as a whole knows almost nothing about this problem. Yes, we have operated the space station for a couple of decades, but the total number of people who have lived in space is Fewer than a thousand. Um, many more people have lived at the South Pole, for example. We know a lot more about living at the South Pole than it's than than in uh, than in space. And no one has lived on the Moon for any length of time. No one has lived on Mars. No one has ever built a city outside of the Earth. Um, very, very few cities have even been built uh, in anything but ideal environments on Earth. So I think it's important that when we begin this conversation, we we kind of make it explicit that we don't really know what we're talking about. We don't have any direct experience. We can take our best guess, but we have to recognize that if these cities in space are ever built, the people who build them will necessarily know millions of times more about the process than than we can possibly hope to know by speculating, Uh, even if, as we were doing today, we're using a lot of math while we speculate.
0: Actually, I'm going to, what you just said is I I think I shared with you that I'm not a space. Uh, enthusiast. I, I don't wake up and every morning mm. want to learn and go and do. And this, these these points, I didn't know about the South Pole. I think that's brilliant add on. It gives that uh, polar view. I've always said we've had more, I think it's no more than 13 people beyond earth at any given time. When someone says they want to have 50,000 people in eight years or a, a huge city, I'm thinking, do you know how long it takes to build a building on earth? I mean, seriously, how long does it take to build a city on earth? well david we're going to do it different so the, my point is i love what you've just said because you articulated it very succinctly and it's exactly what i had thought about is that we, we're making the idea bigger than or the prospects bigger than the possibilities are, are there today so brilliant you did this, you
1: did it really well thank you i mean there are a handful of um kind of examples of uh, instances where where humans in large organizations have done enormous logistic kind of miracles in very short periods of time. Um, and the, the two that come to mind would be the Berlin Airlift um, and also Operation Overlord uh, during D-Day, um, in, in which, you know, quite literally tens of thousands of people and and millions of tons of stuff were moved around in a very short period of time, uh, sometimes with very little planning. Um, but just
0: for the sake, but- I, I know the Berlin Airlift, Air but what was this scope and scale?
1: um i can't remember off the top of my head but the the i think they flew more than a million flights and the the average cargo per flight was on the order of five tons um because these were pretty pretty early aircraft like c47 um dc3 um so yeah basically fairly primitive stuff and and that was over 16 months um and there were earlier airlifts and there have been airlifts since then as well um but it was just kind of a yeah, over a period of months, the, the whole process became a, a very well-oiled machine. Um, they pioneered things like uh, instrument landing so they could maintain the flight rate even as as the weather got bad, for example. That's um, where it came out of? Well, I mean, people have been trying instrument landing for a long time, but that was the first time it was kind of crucial um, because the one of the fundamental limitations they had was like the number of aircraft and number of pilots. And so they couldn't really afford to have them crash. Um, and And of course, they... Well, I don't want to get into detail. We'll get, No, we'll get no, but it's but, cool um, because I have not heard I've really heard good YouTube videos on, on the Berlin airlift. So the, the,
0: the, the interesting uh, the first thing that came to mind, soon as you said it, was yes, but it was we were not we were we already understood a little bit about lift. We already
1: understood we had we had already flown. So this was the well, compilation. yeah, just done World War Two, so, right? So in many yep. ways, the structures that existed to to organize these things uh, had not been completely demobilized yet. Uh, this is 1948, so um yeah i mean i i think the soviets were trying to to blockade berlin um to force capitulation of of the part of berlin that was still controlled by western forces um and was otherwise surrounded by by the soviets um and they um you know unfortunately did not uh well unfortunately for them did not succeed um but uh you know i mean as part of this process for example um an entire new airport was built um so it was like kind of a a big a big big procedure um, anyway i don't i don't want to get sidetracked no, that, much, that's okay uh, that, it, it
0: gave me enough because i didn't know enough about what you said was brilliant and then you added an example of it which is perfect so i love it thank you
1: <clears throat> yeah but uh, there are actually people out there um who've done some amazing amazing uh work in recent videos and stuff on youtube on it um there's a guy called real engineering on youtube i think it i think he's done a whole series on it and um and you could maybe get them as a guest and they could talk about it because like part of the reason that that I said, let's talk about interactions between environmental hostility and technology dependence is that I could probably make a claim that that relatively few people um, would have more insight on this topic than me right now, um, because I've gone to the effort of writing like dozens of blogs that very few people have ever read on it. Um, Whereas, you know, basically at this point, the world is full of people who know a lot more about space than I do uh, on almost any topic,
0: and, and, um, that's, and that's great. The the challenge is it's the interconnectedness of their ideas to a r- yes. realistic time frame and possibilities, and to strip out the hype and bring it down to something that someone can work with. And that's one of the challenges. That's why I liked what I read, what you wrote, because it was so pragmatic you weren't trying to prove that we can do, we can fly to another solar system. You were saying, this is the engine. This is the way it works. This is the possibilities. And it was just so well-written. So yeah, the, the real engineering, if you know those people, please feel free to connect uh, I don't, help. but I
1: wish I did. Um, well,
0: it's okay. I will, I will tell them that you said something and they'll say, oh, Casey, yeah. he's the guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, so, uh, let's jump on to point two then, um, which is the vision of rugged self-reliance and its limitations. So, um, you know, basically a lot of people have written stuff about, I'm going to say, going to live on Mars. It could also be like going to live on the moon. Um, back to, you know, Highland, um and various science fiction authors, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote an absolutely beautiful trilogy about living on Mars. Uh, Buzz Aldrin's written a couple of books uh, about about living on Mars. Uh, obviously, Robert Zubrin, who's been on the show. Um has has written quite extensively i think he's written three or four books now about um about you know basically living on mars and building up cities and towns and stuff there um and whenever i read these books i always kind of delve into the details and i'm like okay so what is what what's really happening what is what is the manifest for the first cargo like let's let's dig into details here and and actually as far as that goes um with with some exceptions a lot of the a lot of the writing involved kind of um Uses a metaphor, or or kind of extrapolates from a vision of you know the rugged, the rugged pioneer, um, you know uh, on the uh, on the frontier, and um, and that the kind of canonical example that makes sense uh, in the context of American culture is this um, somewhat fictitious uh, historical analog of twenty acres and a mule, and the idea is that you know you can have someone who's who's very clever. Uh, who's a generalist who's able to do many things they have a small patch of land they have they have an animal to do some work for them and they're able to eke out an existence um you know kind of on the on the on the margins but they're they're incredibly rugged and and resourceful um and i think this is it's a nice image but it, it fundamentally does not work in space um there's there's no way that uh a city on mars could possibly be bootstrapped um from something like 20 acres and a mule or maybe you know Three small domes and a robot, or something like that, yep, uh, yep. into something that that is that is self-reliant um, and um I, I'm not quite sure like the best way to illustrate this, but but i mean it's it's probably instructive to to point out that um for most of the American pioneers, uh, the twenty acres they were farming was was already farmed by indigenous Americans, like it had already been cultivated for thousands of years. Um, so there wasn't any question as to whether the environment was livable by humans with in this case um, you know less advanced. Uh, metallurgy than say the European settlers, um, so that wasn't really a question. And 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 in fact, if you watch TV shows like Man vs Wild with Bear Gryllis or whatever, uh, that's probably dating me at this point. Um, uh, you can see that like there's these environments that 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 bear will get dropped off in, but all the environments, um, almost all of them, are basically fundamentally um, hospitable to human life. Um, and and in fact, there are some places on Earth like you know, where we evolved in Africa and and maybe Hawaii where. Where you could drop someone with almost no resources and they could live indefinitely, uh, you know, get stranded on a desert island and live on coconuts or something um, without dying. But, you know, just even on Earth, it's not that hard to find an environment that is so hostile that that if you drop Bear Gryllis off, he would die instantly. And then yeah. that would be the end of the show. Um, put him in a I, I, place that he's definitely examples. gonna win at. Yes. Well, in this case, definitely gonna lose. It's a very very short show and, and no, no advertising and, and no follow-on season because he wouldn't make it. But like if if you drop Bear Gryllis 10 meters under the water, And he wasn't able to surface that would be the end of the show you know like humans can't live underwater some animals can but humans can't uh just by themselves um if you if he was dropped underground you know that's it uh if he was dropped 10 meters above the ground uh and he would fall and die um if he was dropped on the top of a tall mountain without any equipment you know and i think he has done a couple of kind of snow traverse shows and things over the years but but in general like part of the reason that we we kind of admire alpinists and mountain climbers is that it's just like mountains are not friendly places to be. Um, it's it's actually super common, even, even for professional climbers to die while they're while they're climbing mountains. Um, and then you have know, deserts, windy places, remote places, places, no food or water. Um, and then even, you know, even like places that are technologically supported if you lack the right knowledge. So for example, if Bear Gryllis was stranded uh, in the cockpit of an airplane, he didn't know how to fly, you know, he wouldn't last very long. Um, so I think it's important to point out that even on earth, Uh, We have um, a huge variety of environments that we are unable to survive without severe, like huge quantities of technological dependence, Um, you know, and just to make that explicit, all the environments that I just mentioned, humans live and work in every day, uh, but they do so in tunnel boring machines and submarines and boats and airplanes and helicopters and um, or with climate controlled ski I mean, I live in Southern California, which is, you know, much more lush than it would have been if we hadn't dug giant tunnels to bring water in from Colorado. Uh, to, to water the area here. Um, so, you know,
0: California and Florida are
1: effectively pretty terraformed. To add, yeah.
0: To add to your list, I was having one of the conversations we were having with our team, and uh, I was describing the challenges, not in the way you articulated, it, a little bit differently. And the conversation came to the point where this guy had said, Do you know, trying to what the, the moon hut and our construct and what we've put together and the designs and the plans. He said it would probably be more difficult to build at the bottom of the Marianas Trench than it would be comparable to build on the moon.
1: I don't know if that's oh, I, an I exactly agree with that. It's... You would agree? Yeah, yeah, that's. I would so... agree with that. Um, the, the, just just like the Mars or the moon is not the most hostile environment you can imagine. Um, you know, it'd be much much more difficult to build, uh, you know, a facility, for example, inside an active volcano or on the surface of the sun. Um, just just to kind of give two examples yeah, of places that are much, much more difficult. And that's yeah.
0: what I... Because he said to me, I think you're the first person I've ever run into who considers the moon the eighth continent. You're not looking at it in the same way that I've met other people. You see it as... A, a project, a construction project on a different place with a different set of parameters, but if you were going to do it, and this is these are the words we were talking about, if you were going to do it in, uh, on the uh, poles, you'd have one condition. If you have to do it in the middle of a desert where you didn't have any airlifting capabilities, be another, but even if you did, try to build in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, in the middle, that's challenging, but then he added... And the marianas trench would be more difficult and i said exactly this is a this is a construction project and you have to look at it to say it is not the the most damaging or most difficult place to build so yes again
1: yeah nailing exactly I agree with that mm-hmm. yeah so i think the key like the key takeaway from this point is that um it's not really possible to build uh an environment on on the moon or on mars or in, anywhere in space um and this is going to sound painfully obvious uh, but but it does not depend on on like very advanced technology, and so you think well, you know even like 1980s level technology is probably not good enough. So it, it's like super super new stuff, like stuff we've just barely invented, um, is necessary to make this work, um, and that's yeah you know, that's interesting, right? Because so can I ask a behavioral question? Yes,
0: please. Why do you believe? And again, I I don't put myself in the classification. I'm not an enthusiast. I don't watch all of, I don't wait for the next launch. I know what's going on. I I have a lot of other things going on. I'm always surprised at how the beyond earth ecosystem. And I think I shared this with you. Space is not an industry. It's a space is not an industry. It's a geography. So when I use beyond earth, it means anything beyond the above our atmosphere. Why is there so much? I'm going to try to be nice here delusional thinking i'm trying to be nice but why is there such a, a a disconnect between the realities of what you just said and the realities of what we're discussing here like we can we are this is easy or this is hard space so are it's easy but we're going to put 50,000 people in a uh in a Van Braun or an O'Neill cylinder, or we're going to travel and live on Mars, and it makes it as if there's a whole missing segment of the. You know, it's a twenty-step, it's a twenty-chapter book, but we're going to cut out numbers two through twelve and just f- concentrate on we're here now, we're there. Why? Do you, do you have any uh, your perception of why?
1: Um, well, I think for the Neilians and and a lot of other people that kind of get interested in space via science fiction it's the science fiction writer's prerogative to suspend disbelief and make it seem believable and and possible and um and so and a lot of people come to identify with these kind of alternative worlds um as places you know it's basically fantasy it's like a, it's a place where people can be different and and you know you know tr- you know myself as an example traditionally kind of shy uh introverted um you know eight-year-old or ten-year-old or something could could be a different kind of person there and and not suffer the same kind of psychic lim- limitations but um, so it, it's very attractive to think that it would be quote unquote, easy to go to Mars and then on Mars, I would be less of a loser or something. Um, but you know, I think it is, it's, it's necessary to, to kind of realize that if you are serious about doing more than fantasy, fantasizing about, about these possibilities that you kind of get real about the, the real, the challenges. Th- that's, that you that's
0: where, that's the disconnect for me. It's that you, you understand there's fantasy, you see the realities and yet I hear some people you know, I hear the names, they're out there, and they're professing things that I can't logically figure out A plus B plus C, or even any mathematical formula equals X. It doesn't work. And I don't know how a person who's skilled in these disciplines would not make that connection. Is it just the desire to have something more?
1: Well, I I think um, you have to be pretty optimistic to try this at all. Like if you think about the actual industry of making spacecraft, for example, um, you know uh, uh, it's it's very unusual for a spacecraft to be completed under budget and under and like before schedule, right? Like um, ahead of schedule, and there could be a couple of different reasons for that, but but one of them basically comes down to optimism. Um, in that you know we always think that it'll be easier than it will be, um, especially the first the first few times you do it. So I think it's it's important to just kind of build that into your assumptions and recognize that that you know, again, going back to the first point, because we don't really know what we're talking about. Um, we will, we will tend to be surprised and have to learn things along the way that we were not expecting. That's kind of part of it. And it's a good thing. So anyway,
0: you know, it's it's um, just an it's interesting for me, only because my in my head, I'm just saying with our team, we talk about it. it is what are we doing here? And what's possible without adding on these layers of unbelievably, unbelievable travel. It's great to dream, but that connection has to be, this is my dream and I want to get there, but don't talk about it as if it's a reality today. And I know there's so many sayings. If, if you dream it, believe it, believe it, it could be done. I've heard those. You still have to start with gravity, uh, oxygen, hydrogen. We have to look at some of the, uh, the, I to call it pragmatic, but the the realities of economics, as you just brought up, the cost and uh, the project timelines. It's a fascinating thing for me, and I don't know how to be able to. To the reason I ask is, how do we bring some of those people who are brilliant into the fold of what we're working on? And so this is a, a personal mm. question for Project Moonup. I'm trying to figure out how we get a person who I think is absolutely brilliant to understand that they're brilliant, but they have to be able to work in an environment that the brilliance is not tainted by a delusional aspect of, we're gonna have 50,000 people living in space in 10 years.
1: Yeah, I, um, I, I I see what you're talking about and I agree. And and actually, I gave a talk on this at the Mars Society Conference many years ago, which I called Confronting the Credibility Gap um, in Space Exploration ad- Advocacy. and. The reason for that was that i saw that you know basically people let their enthusiasm get ahead of them and and within within the culture you know within the the club if you like that was fine people understood what they were talking about but unfortunately when that message would would try and jump out into the real world it would encounter people who you know didn't have the same reasons for optimism didn't understand that necessarily some things were being kind of elided or exaggerated and and instead it would just kind of come across as crazy talk um and so one of the reasons that I wrote this blog series that we referred to earlier um was that I kind of saw, um, and I, I talked about i you know I, I framed it as like, you know inaccuracies in space journalism or something misconceptions in space journalism. but but really the the secret the secret uh, strategy all along, which is so secret that I wrote it on the first blog, was that um I wanted to begin. Uh, I wanted to try and promote a way of thinking about these problems that began with asking the right questions um, and asking questions rather than insisting that we already knew the answers and and kind of going from there. And so I found that if we, if we just kind of asked the right questions and then thought about how we could go about becoming less ignorant with respect to those questions, we could actually get quite a long way towards something like a solution, um, even though necessarily a lot of the details are very, very difficult for us to fill in right now. Uh, that's kind of been my my um, prof- professional specialty in my career is and, and you did you know, a brilliant job. Taking these job. little pieces and interpolating them together.
0: You did a brilliant job. And I'm going to relate it and I don't know if we get to it later. Uh, the there's the SDG and ESG construct, but if you notice their goals. And the challenge is, I don't see how when you add those goals up, we actually solve for X what it, what we have is the six mega challenges. What we're saying is these are our challenges. Let's start with our challenges and our questions and get better questions and better answers and then more questions. Because by telling someone this is the goal, you've kind of skipped over the formulaic part of it is options. Maybe this isn't the solution. So in your sense, that's one reason I liked your piece is that you brought it to a sense of, let's take away some of these misperceptions that you have and let's break it down. The challenge is Casey, and maybe you run into this, people then take it as you being negative or that you really don't understand. And I think Casey, you understand, you understand better. Does that make sense? Yeah. You you see more because you didn't go down the rabbit hole.
1: Throughout my career, and my life, actually, I've struggled to avoid negativity uh, in describing certain things. So, in some ways, writing this blog post is is kind of a personal journey. Um and it was precipitated in in a couple of cases by reading articles who, by people who I felt should know better, um saying things that were plainly ludicrous. Um and I don't want to kind of go into specifics in terms you of don't have details. To, yep. but. Um, no, it's just, it's just, yeah, we'll get distracted. I don't want to like spend half an hour relating wrong things to you, but, um, yeah. but I was like, well, I could, I could write, you know, a 10,000 word blog, basically just dismantling this, this post piece by piece, um, of, you know, of someone who I've never met and frankly have little interest in, um, or I could be like, Hmm, that's interesting. Why is this person who obviously didn't set out to like advertise their ignorance, uh, ne- nevertheless managed to do so? Why, why have they gotten so confused? Um, maybe other people are confused this way. Let's drill in and understand, where this misconception comes from and explain what's going on and, you know, be necessarily humble about what we don't know um, and just kind of unpack, you know, some of the the key details here. Um, and And I was like, this is good because instead of making the blog post, you know, inherently negative and attacking, um and thus quite repellent to most readers and also specific to a particular article that probably no one read in the first place anyway uh, or very few people read in the first place and also will date it uh now we have we have a a topic focused uh, email that that kind of assumes uh, from the outset that we are engaged in a positive exercise which is you know basically um trying to have a conversation about dispelling certain kinds of uh, uncertainty or ignorance within different populations and it was um probably just that realization that there was a way of approaching these questions in a way that was constructive was the single most important thing uh in this entire exercise because now people all kinds of people have read these blog posts and i get emails from them almost every day saying thank you so much for writing this because it helped me understand this problem and now i can you know move forward with confidence or i can i know what sort of questions to ask um or you know i know what to talk about with my weird uncle on our sunday dinners or something like that and um and so instead of instead of basically just me adding to the noise and the mayhem and the pain, uh, and 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 the ignorance and so on on the internet, which which there's plenty, um, you know, actually kind of tried to you know, um, uh, shift the Overton window toward towards a form of discourse that's more constructive, um, instead of you, you, instead of basically just you know the Mooners and the Marsers pointing fingers at each other and being like you're wrong because of something that no human has any way of possibly knowing, um, you know, just in terms of like ontological limitations to knowledge. Um, Instead, they can say, "Well, actually, we can both recognize that we don't we don't know a whole bunch of stuff, and let's look into this." And one of the reasons that I wrote one of these books about about uh, industrializing Mars was I wanted to convince myself that Mars was a better target than the Moon to start out with. And by the time I was done, I realized that actually, 99% of the challenge is common to both pre- to both places. Yes. And and the common the common differences that we know about these about these things. So the Moon is closer, but you need a bit more delta v to get there. Uh, and Mars has perhaps slightly better minerals on on its available on its surface. Um, and slightly less delta v, but it takes a lot longer to get there. You know, like, if you can't deal with those problems, you sure as hell can't deal with all the other problems that you're going to encounter before you get to like industrialization. So it's kind of in the noise. I mean, like in both places, you need giant machines that chew up rocks and produce metal. That's it. So, and um, and I, and anyway, I do, love the, of, I, I I do love the I do love the I do love the imagery that people put out, which are these huge machines. And I ran a rock
0: quarry. We dropped twenty two thousand tons of stone a day. That's equivalent to. 10 barges going to uh, up to 20 That's barges lot, yeah. going down a river that are a thousand ton each and 250 American semis. That's a lot. And people mm. talk about doing this on the moon. I say, how are you going to get this equipment up there? I mean, do you know what mass you would need to be able to do what you're showing and what, what type of, you'd, you'd have to have a hundred uh, payloads going up. So the, well, you need the thing, almost unlimited mass. Yeah. Right. The thing that I really love about what you just said shared and it's, It's something that I do think about and I I share it also, but in a different way. It's much easier for me personally. If you said, David, write an article, it's much easier for me for you to send me what you want me to write about. And then I could say, oh, wait, 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 okay, let me share with you this. But if you say start from scratch, I, I don't have the same opportunity to expand and deliver so when someone writes uh, an article or a piece it's easy for me to say okay where are they coming from what are they doing now i could write for hours but to just say write something i need an audience i need a person i'm talking to i need to be sharing something for this person to see a new reality that's one reason the podcast is done this way is so that you're helping me yes it's done specifically because you're not thinking about a uh, an infinite crowd you're thinking of david needs some help yeah, maybe a lot of help. I, my wife would probably say I need infinite amount of help. But that's a different story. Is uh, you are able to take and break down these pieces. So I love that it's not negative, and we don't want to be negative. Yet I I find ourselves at Project Moon Hut having to almost talk down from the ledge. Some of the people who are no 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 we'll do this, and it's often far easier to find somebody who really wants to build who doesn't know a lot about this ecosystem, who will spend the time reading and learning and looking for truths. And it's kind of a challenge yeah. because you don't want to be, you don't want the wrong person in your team and you can easily find somebody who will
1: misdirect a conversation. I, I don't, I don't know if that makes I think, sense, yeah. but it does. No, it, it, I, I, know, I know exactly what you're, what you're talking about. It, it's a good. Yeah. I mean, so one of the, one of the key challenges is how do you take all kinds of people who end up on your team, whether you want them or not, and, and kind of create a, um, create a, a natural way of talking about a particular problem that means that everyone is able to contribute constructively yep. without necessarily becoming too attached to opinions that are probably premature. Yep. Um, so that's, yeah, that's just kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, that's how I approach this problem.
0: It, it, um, and it's, that's why we don't call it lunar and lunar. And we don't use those words the word MIRTH, Moon, and Earth. We use words that don't alienate a nine-year-old or a seven-year-old. And one of the challenges in the Beyond Earth ecosystem is acronyms. I could sit in a meeting with, with people in the Beyond Earth and they all know all the acronyms. But I'm it's another yes. language to me. I don't I, I can't even participate because I'd need to be looking up every fourth word or every fourth acronym. So we avoid acronyms and we avoid all of these this complexity. If I can't have a kid in a If we can't have a kid in a classroom at 12 years old or nine years old, be able to understand it and talk about it, then you really have a challenge, not because of the nine year old, uh, not because of their grade level, but because then it's ubiquitous because other languages have to learn them too, other cultures who don't have the same knowledge of technological advances that have happened. And this makes it a, a much easier conversation. And so I, I do love your example of how, how you. I do like your uh, what I've been writing. So no, f- thank you. You you reinforce some things and gave me some ideas. Oh, uh, well, so our, help, I I suppose. No, oh, no. It, well, that's. I think I shared with you that the number one reason we do the podcast is so that I learn because if I learn, the person sitting behind me who's in theory there is going to learn too, yeah. because these are real questions. This is a real challenge. We are building the four, we have designed four phases of the moon. Hunt. We have people who have seen it, not a lot, people like Grant Anderson from Paragon. And he has said, Oh my God, there's nothing like this out there. And we don't, we're not looking for praise. We're looking for people who to help us. And you're helping by giving us listeners uh, a new sense of framework. So I, I appreciate it. So uh, I guess on the next, is there anything more with resiliency and limitations? Are we on to, um, uh, a- NRC? How did you say it? It's not Autarchy.
1: anarchy. So, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so autarky is a, is an ancient Greek word. Uh, it's an English word as well, but it's, an, it, it means self-reliance. Um, so, um, it's kind of most commonly used in, in, in modern usage in political terms. So we talk about which countries are able to you know, produce all their own stuff within their own borders. Um, and actually many, many countries, more than 50 countries have tried this uh, probably in the last hundred years. Um, and almost all of them have failed. Uh, and, you know, I'm talking like um, Albania, Cambodia, you know, a bunch of uh, North yep. Korea, for example, Cuba uh, does trade quite a bit, but at times has tried to be, um extremely self-reliant within its own borders um and uh, and the united states has been i think probably the closest to autarkic um but roughly speaking today there are there are about five countries that can quote unquote make everything within their own borders and even then it's not really the case like they still have to import certain kinds of technology and and, and uh, energy and things like that um and the smallest of those is south korea uh, which has a population of almost 50 million people so um the and, and also south korea trades a lot um, so so it's kind of a it's kind of a false thing in in um uh on the world today in our globalized world. But uh the reason we talk about it is that um you know one of the main strands of of modern thought for building cities in space is to make it a self-supporting or self-sustaining city in space. Why am I um, loving you, Casey? Practice, what is that? What does why that am mean? I loving you? Because you're like, <laughs> Yes, yes, I love this. Keep on going, sorry. This is yeah, why sure. are we asking that question? Well, I think, I think it's a worthwhile thing to do, um, personally. And and the reason for that is that, um, I mean, even on the earth today, like the barriers to trade are at an artificial low, I mean, like the only reason that everyone is able to trade with everyone else, um, you know, in a post mercantilist era is because at the end of the second world war, the United States and its allies decided that, uh, they were going to allow everyone, even the people who had been on the losing side, uh, or the traditionally losing side of the second world war would be able to trade and, and quote unquote, get wealthy and, Rich and and happy, um, and it's been enormously beneficial to the world as a whole. Uh, that that essentially, um, 99% of the spending, uh, security spending, is is to the U.S. Navy, um, has been able to um, safeguard uh, the sea lanes for for trade. Um, that said, uh, it's much easier to trade on the Earth, where uh, it it costs something like five or ten cents per kilogram to send cargo anywhere, um, than to trade between Earth and space, where you know, in my wildest dreams, it might be as cheap as $100 a kilogram to send stuff that's a thousand times more expensive. And so, um, there, there's the the outside possibility that if we built a, a large town on the moon or on Mars, that we may lose the ability temporarily or permanently to resupply it via spaceships from Earth, um, you know, launching lots and lots of rockets from Earth. And so, it would probably be prudent to to do what you could to make the respective cities in these places as self-reliant as possible, as quickly as possible. And and the way you would measure that is you would say, well, uh, if the spaceship stopped coming tomorrow, how long would it take before everyone here suffocated or starved to death? And and that's actually a question that is posed right now for humans on earth who are deployed, for example, on on nuclear submarines, where the, the major constraint to their deployment length is the amount of food they can pack on board, or in Antarctica. Uh, where resupply is quite logistically challenging, um, and you know sooner or later, in pla- especially in places that that can't really grow their own food, um, you know you will run out of food. So, um, and 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 potentially in space, you could run out of other things as well. Um, so I think it is worthwhile to think about um, self sufficiency in space. Um, and and the way that I like to define it is, is not like how many people, presumably well trained people and well resourced people, do you need um, on a, in a Mars base or a moon base, uh, or an asteroid or whatever to make anything, you know, so to have the ability to prototype anything, you know, they have a machine shop and they have a little custom fab and they can make their own ships and stuff like that. Um, effectively, you know, you could imagine that if you had 2000 really, really smart people, you could make an iPhone from scratch. Um, but that's not enough, right? Because, because actually the challenge is not being able to make anything the challenge is being able to make everything and to make everything faster than kind of all the equipment that you depend on to do it degrades with normal use um so there's kind of this closure problem which is that if you have 2000 really smart technicians they could they could replace one machine but in the time it took them to replace that machine maybe 20 other machines broke and so in fact you you need many many more people because you have to have the ability to replace all the machines in real time um it's kind of like jumping off a cliff with a bag of parts and, and having to assemble it into, into an airplane um, before you land. While flying, and, while, while dropping, yes. Yeah, while dropping, yeah, yeah. And so, um, so it's actually, it's, it's a huge challenge. And this is one of the reasons why, why there's basically no, no countries on Earth, despite being extremely well motivated in the case of North Korea or Cuba, have, have managed to succeed. Um, and it's also why I think when people insist that it, it might be possible to make a self-reliant Mars city with a few hundred people, as for example, you can make a more or less self-reliant medieval town with a few hundred people. Um, it's not really uh, realistic because the the medieval town uh, invariably lived in a place with access to air and food and water, uh, or at least arable land. Um, and and, and those are huge uh, challenges. And, and, the, the huge and challenges space, you don't have any of that, right? You are you you starting. In a box.
0: You don't, and, and there's a. I would add. There is a misunderstanding of the interconnectedness of to ev- for everything. Something had to be mined. Something had to be extracted. Something had to be separated. Someone had to make the tire. Someone had to make the gearbox so you could do that. Someone had to. Yes. And when you put all the pieces together, it's not a thousand. It's millions of innovations. And millions yes. of constructs and millions of tools and dies. So people, the 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 belief that we have a three D printer solves mm. that challenge. It doesn't. It, it doesn't, just yeah. solves a it solves a small fraction of a
1: challenge.
0: And I think one of the it's examples, a piece of the puzzle. It's a piece but of the not, puzzle.
1: It's not the whole. It's not the whole puzzle. Uh, um, off, and so you can yeah. kind of wave your hands and say, you can wave your hands and say, well, you know, it's got to be around a million people. Um, but actually, in order to be a million people, we'd have to be really a lot smarter than we are right now. Because if it was Absolutely. a million people, well, Cuba has Cuba has eleven million people, and they can't even make the, they they can't make pretty much anything except their own food. But right. at least as far as experiments in communism go, um, Cuba's only had one major famine, and all the others have had more than one major famine. Um, but that you know, various capitalist countries also had famines prior to the invention of of uh, fertilizers and mechanized uh, farm machinery. But um, but you know the, the 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 in this case Cuba and, and North Korea and other pariah states uh, lose the ability to to fuel and produce their own farm machinery and their own fertilizers and so you know they're basically back to square one. It's 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 now I'm not saying that that um, necessarily the the Moon City would would uh, become a pariah state and be unable to import things but um, but it is it's worthwhile to kind of. Um, well, I mean, it's kind of bleeds into into point four, which is about labor scarcity, which is that it, it's necessary to have a very highly productive workforce. And so if you wanted to do it with just a million people, the per capita productivity would have to be about 10 times higher um, at least than than we can manage today. Um, and that's that's with a workforce composed almost entirely of specialists. Um, they have to be experts at doing just kind of one thing and doing it extremely well. Uh, so that again, this gets away from this idea of the rugged generalist on the frontier with his mule and, and 20 acres, just kind of eking out in an existence and doing a bit of everything um in, in contrast because it's it's so expensive to have humans in space they have to be you know uh fully supported with all the tooling you could possibly imagine and all the machinery and all the power and all the space and all the mass all these other constraints we'd want to get rid of them right because at the end of the day uh, all these constraints slow you down um and so that's why starship is such a powerful kind of thing because it says finally for the first time we don't have to worry about making everything out of titanium in space because we can just ship pallets of materials uh, with relatively low cost but even so even with all of that labor is still astonishingly scarce and we have to be like the, the critical and the defining challenge is how we you know maximize the productivity of a workforce over a very very long period of time um which is in in this case the workforce is extremely hard to, to replace they're extremely expensive to import and to operate um there are analogous industries here on earth such as um uh oil drilling for example where the workforces are typically rotated in and out and they're extremely highly paid because the what they're working on has an extremely high burn rate in terms of um in terms of uh, capital expenses so you know it's kind of we have to think about it that way i think the the overwhelming thing is that if we wanted to do something like autarky or self-reliance or self-sustainability on a space city that um the challenge is not just being able to make anything so having uh, prototyping Workshop that can make anything, but having like a whole huge set of factories that are able to make things efficiently and productively um, with a relatively low um, labor inputs. Um, so, a lot of mechanization, a lot of automation, um, so that the kind of average productivity of someone uh, living in one of these bases is extremely high. Um, so it's it's completely different from the idea of of kind of the rugged generalist living on the pioneer with their mule for company um who's able to do a bit of everything uh, and has to be able to do a bit of everything in order to survive, um because that just doesn't scale. in space, it's the environment is so hostile that um that you cannot survive without extremely advanced technology and you cannot maintain extremely advanced technology with a given population size unless you are extremely careful about how you. Use people's time, um, S- so in order to make that work. Okay, sorry, go on.
0: No, I, well, I was going to
1: say in order. To- I, yeah, go ahead. I, I've got a question that might you might be filling it, answering it now. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, the various things that can make labor more productive um, include working conditions, you know, pay, obviously, um, but also uh, the sort of machinery and tooling they have access to, um, and in most. Um, examples of cases where we think about building small towns or something on on the moon or on Mars. Um, those small towns have to be built, you know, with very, very lightweight materials and and it's all kind of very cramped or maybe it's in a lava tube or a cave. And so when we think about the constraints on productivity actually there's all kinds of constraints there's, there's there's power availability constraints there's space constraints there's material constraints as well as labor constraints but if we want to make sure that we're doing the absolute best we can here then it's necessary to push all those constraints away as as aggressively as as aggressively as we possibly can and labor scarcity is the, is the last and the final constraint to deal with and that's what's so powerful about starship as an idea which is that it says what if you know well, how many sins can we cover with a lot of upmass? You know, what if we weren't constrained on how much mass we could send? What if we could just send a lot of stuff? Does that make it easier? Yes, it makes it a lot easier. So that's kind of the the key the key recognition there, which but is that I, I, we need I would, millions I'm going to jump there to be very clever. Yes, I'm going to
0: jump in because I I think what I love the articulation of it because it does define these parameters that we're confined to. Yet, labor constraints. If we were to amplify that a little bit more. It is not only the labor constraints or the un, or the capabilities on Earth, it is the learning curve and that individual's capability to be able to live beyond Earth, which is something that's a variable we don't understand. We don't we understand in the International Space Station confined quarters. but we're talking about living on another rock, we're talking about living in confined quarters, a whole different set of parameters and responsibilities that the person is uh, would have to achieve. And the learning curve to get enough population to be able to do that with these models of 50,000, a million people would require a massive undertaking. I mean, you and I just got kicked off of Zoom. I mean, <laughs> we're on earth. I, I could run into another selected. room. Yeah. yeah I- I had my backup, I I ran into another room, got my computer, but I've got two 34 inch monitors here. I've got three boom mics. I mean, I've got all the tools in the world. And all of the the analogy I use with people all the time, who talk about the advances. I say, you know, if someone put an asterisk or a forward slash on a program that you and I are talking on, we wouldn't be able to communicate. It, It doesn't matter that I'm sitting here and you're there and we're talented, we've got. If there is in the software, a forward slash where there should be an asterisk the call won't
1: go through so I agree um but but it's to point out like because you were prepared and because you had you know basically backups and spam machinery and things like that uh, we were able to recover the podcast in 10 minutes correct you know, it wasn't the case that it wasn't the case that your computer failed and and all the data was lost heaven forbid um and also one of us died uh so it's, um, yeah, we, so like, we have, we, but we we have ha- to assume that things are going to go wrong and we have to build our systems to be robust to expected and unexpected failures. And one of the ways of doing that is to uh, just send a lot of stuff.
0: Yes. A- 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 and Starship, or let's not call it just Starship, any large mass capable rocket or transport system let's just maybe it's not just one vehicle but any transport yeah. system that enables you to be able to resupply or supply or provide in the beginning makes a difference and yeah. and that yet if you were to extrapolate that in terms of moving beyond earth we don't know what all of those components <laughs> may be and so when you when a, a target is selected in my head, such as Mars, eight months away, you, you have to live a different paradigm. But if you're three days away, granted, running out of oxygen would be a really bad thing. Granted, running
1: out of food, well, three days, some you, people will survive. You can't... Yeah, you, you, I think you, it's necessary to think about, like, three days, how long does it actually take to get the cargo together and put it on the rocket and then send the rocket? It's probably a little bit longer than three days. Yep. But also, at the same time, you know, we're not, we're not seriously thinking about building a base on the moon and just like sending one rocket and it's done instead of, you know, r- routine flights. In fact, w- w- arguably the major constraint on earth is how quickly you can launch rockets and how big they are. Um, and I would just say at this point that like the key characteristic of Starship and then other Starship like launch systems that are not yet built, um, is that they maximize, uh, tons per year to orbit and then yep. minimize dollars per ton. So there's like, Two, you could kind of imagine a graph, if you like, or, or a figure with, mm-hmm. with two key, those two key parameters. One is um, is dollars per ton, and that has to be small. And the other one is tons per year, that has to be large. Um, and so any any rocket that's kind of built around that assumption, of like you know dropping cargo in one hundred ton increments or more uh, anywhere in the solar system, um, with minimum fuss, uh, has the potential to turn the logistics problem, of moving stuff around in space, from the main problem to something that's kind of below the API. Um, you just kind of click the button and it and it arrives, so, which is uh, yeah, uh, how it has to be.
0: Let me uh, my my perspective is a j- slightly different. Not that we're not talking Good. the same language, but we're, there's a slight difference. The minute you have the capability of doing resupply, you mitigate or diminish the need for a lot of the other activities that would happen otherwise. For example, let's assume a hundred ton or fifty ton, whatever it may be in a regular supply position, you then don't need to have agri-farming because there's a lot of space necessary. There's the, you have to have water or some type of mechanism for the plants to grow in. And you'd have to ship modules or a coverage or create domes. You can then take that off the table from the beginning. You could say, we don't need an yes. agri-farm or 40 of these because that's a lot of cost, yes. time, and energy. You take that off. You could also say, we're not going to be Star Trekky and walk up to the, tele, tele, um, the food replicator. We're not going to have to create mm-hmm. that. We could no. ship enough food so your activities, your design, your construct is about creating the next opportunity of development it doesn't have yes. to be about and so in our in project moon hut because you haven't seen the designs we are working on we don't have any agricultural components of it in its design mm-hmm. it's a 40-year plan because we're looking at a sequential uh restocking supply system so that we can take those ancillary challenges off the table in this new environment does that make sense
1: it makes a lot of sense and and actually that's actually the next point that i wanted to come to once we've once we've retired the labor scarcity thing which is talking about development prioritization but yes i i I will stay right right here that i agree that um that the the total amount of food that someone needs on a yearly basis is is relatively small compared to um other stuff that people would need to survive in space um and also the 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 hassle of producing it locally is is non-negligible um, but even even on the South Pole base, they actually have a small greenhouse, so they can make a bit of fresh food, yeah. uh, to augment their rice and beans and beans and rice. So, so there's like a bit of a mixture going on there. But um, but the, but to, that I would bet you, to,
0: I would argue yeah, that that was not for food. That was a psychological decision.
1: Yes, it's a psychological thing. Yeah. Correct, and even it's on also, our, t- it's also a research thing. Right, and like, on so our you, you
0: know. on our team design construct, someone had said we, you have to have a psychologist, but we added people that many of the activities you would do for humankind require the psychological question, not the biological. So to be able to put a little parsley on top of your food makes you feel human, but it doesn't mean more that it's not, it's not your nutrient. It's the mental state of feeling connected to the outside world.
1: Yes, that's, that's, that's completely correct. And, and, on that point, um, you wouldn't necessarily send a psychologist, you would have, uh, an entire hospital, like mm-hmm. yes. think, think big. Um, so cool. just to come back to your point. We do, you by the way, we do spaces. have a hospital, but yes. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned confined spaces. So, um, uh, you know, for, for humans, for example, who live on submarines, who work on submarines, it's, it's common for them to have extremely limited personal space. Yep. Um, but that's actually a major constraint. And, and you could imagine like, what would it take to make a nuclear submarine self-sufficient for a hundred years, as opposed to three months? Um, and you could kind of run through that, that, uh, that thought experiment, but, but essentially if that's one of the constraints that can reduce the productivity of the workforce on Mars or on the moon, maybe we should do what we can to reduce that constraint. And so instead of having people live in tiny steel boxes underground, uh, we could build, uh, structures on the surface as we do here on earth. So you don't have to move too much dirt, um, that are much larger. Um, and in fact, I, I think that if you're in the business of doing self-sufficiency on on mars and this is where i've done all the math and all the examples the moon is pretty much exactly the same um, you have to have such enormous volumes i'm talking like millions and millions of square feet for factories that it's not actually all that hard to say we'll have millions of square feet for living areas as well uh, mm-hmm. you know giant kind of open open air plazas and and individual uh, apartments or or small dwellings or whatever like that's not a problem we don't have to we don't have to kind of sign ourselves away to living in a sleeping bag for the rest of our lives um, right if we're going to do this the, the proper way and then you also mentioned a very interesting point which i, I kind of plan to gloss over but i'll come back to it which is that um the learning curve and so the learning curve i think in the way you're referring to it um, kind of talks about how we take a a generic you know trained human here on earth They don't have to have a degree or anything like that but they have to be able to do useful things and um and then train them to be able to function on on mars or something and and the key uh, insight is that actually on 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 the the Mars base or the Moon base, um, we want them to be as productive as possible, which we want, which means we want their environment to be as close to a productive Earth-like environment as possible. So room yeah. temperature, uh, shirt sleeves environment, open sky, uh, you know, well laid out workplaces, good um, ergonomics, all that kind of stuff. Um, but there will still obviously be training res- you know, as a result of living in a hostile environment, as there are there is specialized training if you live on a submarine or an aircraft carrier or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um but the the other aspect of the learning curve that I, I kind of wanted to dive into um is this idea of labor ab- abstraction. So um we mentioned just just now that you could have a small greenhouse where you grow a few lettuces or something, but then as the base grows over time, you know, um, Essentially, at some point, you get to the point where it becomes cheaper to make food locally than to import it. Um, just just depending on the relative costs of labor and productivity and the costs of shipping. Um, and this we'll talk about in some more detail in a few minutes. Um, and so you could imagine, like, you have a couple of people whose job it is to like make sure the greenhouse works and grow a few lettuces. Um, but then a few years after that, and now it's their job to actually grow like a lot of plants. So enough basil for yep. everyone, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're starting to uh, produce all the fresh food that you need locally uh, while still depending on, say imported pasta and rice for a lot of car- uh, carbohydrates and and um you know the bulk caloric needs. And then you know a few years after that, well, you start kind of you know spacing out and now you've got you know more millions of square feet of land that's being actively cultivated by robotic um farming machines and and so on. But the key thing is that the the population of people who are operating this this opera like operating this part of the economy or this part of the industry uh doesn't doesn't grow proportional to its productivity so so ideally like more people would be sent up to work on these systems but the sorts of jobs they would be doing would go would go from like individually handling handling seeds and plants and like planting things and watering stuff to then you know uh, personally operating machinery that does it for them to operating a computer server that then just dis- automatically dispatches the machinery does work for them to then you know basically automating that process away as well and so every time this you take another step here the human in the loop is moving one step further in abstraction away from actually physically handling the matter the the atoms and so on that is Making the process, and this this works in any constructive industry, in any factory, in anything. You go from having someone whose job is actually to sit there at the lathe and make a screw, to someone whose job is to press the button that makes the screw, to someone whose job it is to assemble the machine that presses the button that makes the screw, to someone whose job it is to assemble robots that, robots that make robots that make robots that make robots. And this this seems absolutely crazy and bananas, right? But no, if you no, look at it, the it, incredible it, no, progress made in software, we're doing exactly the same thing. If no, you no, what you're saying, like, what you're saying, saying
0: is is perfect. It's not you're you downplay it. Uh, You've watched Star Trek. I've got to believe someone like you would watch Star Trek. Um, my question is the, the,
1: Some of the movies, not, no, not as the, much as not, not, not a But you've shows. seen at, at least a few television car. shows.
0: Have you ever said yeah, yeah. to yourself, This is in the future? Why is anybody working in the engine room? Well, like, Star but, Trek but, is a. Um, it's, I know, it's but it's, it's just a construct. <laughs> Why in this advanced society, we still have people taking a screw, uh, you know, a, a tool and a device. In the few, these well, type, type of you advancements. You have to be able to do that as well. I, I understand right? you that don't,
1: you don't lose the prototyping capability; you just augment it. And so that means if something breaks and you happen to not have a spare part, you can make that spare part, even though it's quite costly in terms of labor and material inputs to do it. You would rather have the spare part rolling off an assembly line, but if you didn't, you would you have to have the ability to make it. I
0: un- um, understood. Mine was more a question yeah. of you. You just started talking about the expansion, and the there's a psychological there's a behavioral there's an organizational environment you work in this engine room the engine room is going to become more and more sophisticated more and more automated and at some point your job will become obsolete what happens next what types of roles will you fulfill over a long period of time however and i'm going to jump sorry i'm going to jump backwards yeah please The timeline is the challenge that I think that while you're discussing what you're saying, it's very easy for that group we talked about early to say, see, that's where we need to go. And I've seen the imagery, you have too, of the proposed structures on the moon, the proposed scale, scope, and size on Mars. and They're all too small. (laughs) They're all too small, but they're also done in an Unrealistic timeline without a full ecosystem behind it. And when I say ecosystem, that includes logistics, food creation, techno, tech, the advancements of technology, the ability to transport humans. The entire ecosystem yep. doesn't match. It's one of these things is not like the other. It's the, the math doesn't add up. And what you're talking about here, when we were, t- you started to talk about the learning curve and being able to put food and then grow. You took a very, very mental j- jump. You didn't mean, and I'm putting words in your mouth. You tell me if I'm wrong. You didn't mean first we go, then we build one, and the next iteration, we now have a farm. You're saying over time, over time, and a million tons, whatever's being sent, over time, which could be 25 years, we will get to that point. And I think the belief structure is we could bring
1: that down to, I don't know, three weeks. <laughs> um well there's essentially it is possible to make the timeline go faster uh probably with exponentially more investment yeah um up to a point yes. and i would certainly say that that spacex is developing starship about as quickly as they're able to given their various constraints some of which are regulatory and outside their control yeah,
0: political economic um, religious you name i it, wouldn't say all- that
1: like SpaceX is fundamentally limited by a shortage of money at this point. No. Um, that's not always been the case, but I think it's probably true now. Uh, but, but there's also like, you know, some people say, I will take a thousand years to get there. And some people say we could do it in 20 years. And I, I prefer to lean more towards the shorter end of the spectrum and not just because I think I will die one day. Um, but also because there, wait, wait, wait,
0: one day, I think I will die. I, w- I will think I will die one day. Do you have an alternative universe in your head? That you won't die.
1: No, I mean, I think I think human mortality is 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 the default option. Um, no, no I, you just said which, it was one day. I think I will die. and that sense, I'm saying, okay, do you have an alternative
0: belief that we should know about?
1: Well, okay, I'll 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 take that one and I'll answer it after I after I finish this little section. Okay. Here, um, which is that, um, but yes, uh, I'm sure you want to get into that. But the um, the the thing is like that basically there's there's a critical size of of a of a moon hut or a city or whatever where you can evacuate everyone quickly if you have to. Um, and then there's there's a size that's large enough to uh, sustain indefinitely um, even if all the rockets stop coming and all the imports stop coming they could they could make it um, and in between those two sizes is this kind of dangerous no man's land and you want to get across that as quickly as possible yeah right because because in that's in that scale you're you're really vulnerable and so like do I say well do you want to spend 10 years in that zone or do you want to spend 100 years in that zone or do you just spend 1000 years in that zone and I think you'd want to spend as little time as you possibly can however you can in that zone yeah. um, how how that's done is is another is another question to come back to human mortality um there's no law of physics that says that that our our kind of meat robots have to get old and die and so you know many people since ancient times have wondered how we could go about living longer um and I think you know there's there's some strides being made in that area but um but it's also important to realize that if we were able to you know have a serious go at uh at compactifying the industrial stack enough that we could do everything with a million people that um that yeah that would that would imply enormous advances in science and technology and and you know at some point we will we will complete the tech tree enough to make us die uh less less quickly i'll put it that way yeah mm-hmm. uh, maybe we live for a thousand years instead of a hundred years but but um but essentially we'd have more time to think about these problems which um i think is an interesting it's an interesting thing and in many ways actually solving age-related diseases is is like one of the major major challenges uh to be done this century um i think climate is probably more pressing but um but certainly age-related diseases are, are enormous 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 challenge uh, for our species as a whole um I, I don't really want to go into vast detail but interested readers i do have a um or interested listeners i do have a um uh, a blog that i wrote about this a few months ago which contains Basically, everything I know about this—at least fifty percent—is of which is not true. Um, is obviously <laughs> wrong. Um, so, but don't take my word for it. I'm not an expert on, on biology by any means. But um, no, that, that's cool. what we, we have. We have awesome a person.
0: We have a a person who's worked with us in our uh, in our biotech side, and she's she just created the first from scratch. They created a a live a uh, a pumping heart from cells. So they didn't. Yeah. They they her name is Doris Taylor, brilliant person. Oh, awesome! And if you're ever interested in meeting her, I, I'm gonna be on a call next week with her. But if you're interested in meeting with her, I'll, I'll be sure to introduce you. There was a presentation she gave, and I can also find that link for you afterwards if you're interested to watch what they had done, and it's fascinating. She's absolutely brilliant. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, the the challenge well, the key insight
1: there is that if you're if you're 20 years old, right. Um, you can abuse your body horribly, and it basically will always get better, right? Mm-hmm. Like with 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 small exceptions, um, you can uh, you can drink too much alcohol and stay up too late and and run marathons and and do all kinds of horrible things to yourself in your twenties, and you're basically okay. Uh, but if you try and live that lifestyle in your eighties and you're not Mick Jagger, you're going to run into trouble. <laughs> um, and so the question you have to ask yourself: Why is it that 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 like when I'm twenty, it's not like you know, for for ten whole years, for like three thousand days, my body knows how to fix itself. You know, and then at some point, it's along fucked. the way. It's like yeah. fuck that. I'm not doing that anymore. Um, and and it slows down and um and loses that ability, and you know, eventually it's to frailty and and age related diseases and death. And so you say, well, what if we could figure out how to make it not forget how to fix itself and take itself yeah. back to that equilibrium state where where it basically is is able to do all these things. And and the thing is. Um, there are there's like several strong clues that this should be possible and one of them is that um, obviously humans are much much better at doing that than rats are so for example uh human mortality curves and rat mortality curves are identical except that a rat ages about the same as a human does um in like a week versus a year so like a rat loses the ability to heal itself about 50 times faster than a human does um and so if that's the case why can't we make humans heal themselves 50 times better than a human does you know and in which case that you know the the whole issue would be moot we'd live for 5,000 years um so yeah, that, that's kind of a that's kind of a big clue. No, no, no. That, um, th- th- those are those are great,
0: those are great questions because then if we overlaid it, and I can give other examples, if we overlay that on the Star Trek Enterprise, we have this engine room, <laughs> we have people working in it, no one dies. Well, do you move up in the ladder if the person above you doesn't retire and move on? And do you how does your life structure? So while there's a biological challenge, there's also a psychological challenge on a, a planet like Earth
1: where you will have people yeah. haves and haves and haves-nots. Uh, what, Nancy Pelosi can be in the Senate forever. Sorry, in the House <laughs> forever. Um, uh, no, I mean, I think if uh, yeah, we look at the negative it, consequences it, of, of the gerontocracy, it's almost always related to the fact that that there's this perception, I don't know how, how real it is, but there's a perception that as people get old, they kind of get more conservative and, and maybe less, um, you know, less re-roll in some ways. Uh, at least some people do. And... Um, and certainly, there are age-related uh, consequences on cognition. Um, and so, you know, if you're going to live for a 1,000 years, maybe you don't want to spend all 1,000 years working <laughs> working in the United States Congress. Maybe you'd, like, go on a vacation once in a while. Um, but, but in how, any case, can, you know, can I ask you how old in industries you are? where you depend on natural death to, to advance, it's already pretty, like, you might want to give up. Um, can I ask how old so, you are, Casey? I'm 34, yeah.
0: You're 34, okay. Uh, yeah. I'm 58. My my wife okay. says I'm a, my wife says I'm a child, so I'm actually going backwards, but uh hopefully <laughs> actually she just say I, I I my hair tends to be getting blacker and I don't use any dyes or anything. So she'll laugh and say, what's happening yeah. to you? And I think that's just because of living and, and being excited and working on things that are are interesting. But the there, my point to your point was there's a biological side to it. I agree. And I believe that there are capabilities in that construct to be able to amplify the ability to be able to live longer with a higher quality of life. The challenge on the flip side is it it creates- And and reduced burden on relatives
1: and society as well.
0: Yeah. And it creates a different construct as to, well, if you believe that you'll live forever or longer, what will you do compared to the person who doesn't have access to that? And there's all a tremendous amount of psychological, uh, political, economic, religions, religious tones that can all fall into under that category of challenges. So it's not as if living longer is the answer.
1: (laughs) Well, I think it's already the case that if you're rich and privileged, you live twice as long. I mean, like like that's not really controversial, right? So actually we, we it wouldn't be much use if the way to live forever was to spend more money than what we currently spend right now. I mean, like yep. maybe a little bit more for some people, but, but I, I happen to think that like, it's not expensive to create a rat. So, um, <laughs> if we're able to figure out if, if we're able to figure out how to, how to kind of encourage our cellular machinery to be a bit more convergent, um, which is basically the fundamental problem. It's, it's a convergence issue. Um, then, then it should be, you know cheap enough that that essentially anyone can benefit from it and and actually you know it makes sense that the the wealthier countries might have access to it first but then the wealthier countries are the ones that are bearing the the highest the, burden the brunt of, of the of age-related yeah, the mortality and, and and um and so on and to the point where like you know japan for example you know has has way way more people who are uh, beyond retirement age right now than than people who are uh, at kind of child yes. age yeah uh, which is which is kind of crazy um but um but yeah, this is, we're kind of running the experiment in real time now. Um, and, and I've in, lived uh, in Asia for 10 years. Yeah, a lot years. of times people finally got rich for a while. Yeah, I've lived in um, Asia for 10 years. So I've seen a variety right. of different conditions,
0: everything from the Khmer Rouge and what has happened in their society all the way to the Japanese
1: and the, the challenges facing China. Th- this uh... yeah, China's in a similar pickle, except unlike Japan, uh, China got old before it got rich and Japan got rich before it got old. Yep. So, you know, it's, it's, it's it's a huge it's a huge challenge Anyway, um so, yes. we're going to get sidetracked here if we don't yeah. if we don't stay on But target. you answered um, you
0: answered a great uh, a good question because i like the i like the answer and the direction because what we're talking about is timelines and the timelines for what you're perceiving, our project Moon Hut is 40 years. We have eight mm-hmm. people, 90 people, 578, and 1644. It does not mean that there won't be rotations of those people, but the structures we have built fit that timeline. And there's a development, I think, and I'd like to talk to you afterwards. I think what we've created, and this is what someone like Grant Anderson from Paragon had seen, was we created a logical, in-between set of circumstances that makes that end game work, where I often see first we do this, now we end up with this. Wait, 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 Then wait, wait. Yes. Yeah, I, I missed, yeah, I missed the story in the middle. You gave me chapters one, two, and nine, and 10. And the, that storyline was missing. So I liked how you had put it together. But our timeline, you went 100, you said 10, 100, 1000. Ours is a 40 year, so 2061 is our end game. But 2061 also, and then you went to population, 3.5 billion people will die in the next 25 years on this planet, and that's uh, 3.2. And that's just age, not, no one's gonna, yeah. not including anything else, but that's age. And there'll be a whole nother yeah. generation, here's the psychology that you were bringing up what we were talking about, is this generation, if we add 25 years on to a 10 year old, well, they're 35 years old, they will have lived through a pandemic Uh, Ukraine, the challenges now that we're having with the uh, economics when I talk Western versus and the dollar versus this new brick uh, uh, financial markets that they're trying to create, and everything else that's compounded on top of it from climate change, mass extinction, ecosystems collapsing, and they will want a different future. So that has to be overlaid on top of it. It's not like it's going to be forced on top of people. It's just going to happen. (coughs) Yeah. So, uh, so we've got uh, environmental hostility and uh, labor scarcity. So, is there anything else you
1: wanted to add there? Yeah. So, actually, um, the next, the next point uh, in line, point five, and I think I switched, uh, switched this from point six uh, while while we're taking our break. Um, but it makes more sense this way around. Sure. Is development prioritization. Um, so, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but, um, but essentially. Uh, our our industry kind of depends on hundreds of thousands of key inputs from things like you know standardized sized billets of 6061 aluminium to water to uh, fertilizers chemicals paints plastics uh hydrocarbons in general is something that i've had on the brain recently i've got here um gold flash memory uh specialty foods uh certain other drugs um you know basically pharmaceuticals you've got uh advanced construction machinery you've got um different Different kinds of metals and, and different um, different quantities of them. You've got uh, aggregate, corn, uh, sorry, aggregate concrete, uh, rocks. Uh, you've got fuels. You've got oxygen, other gases, uh, all kinds of things. Um, textiles. Uh, and so, um, if you're if you're in the business of trying to build a factory on Mars or a series of factories on Mars that produce all of these things, uh, then it, it probably helps to figure out which ones you should do first. Um, and what I have done uh over a series of posts essentially most recently uh a few months ago is is take this entire data set of uh of of items and then classify them by two key metrics the first is um their uh you know dollar dollars per um sorry uh sorry a- annual consumption per person so it's in it's in kilograms per person per year um and that's 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 important because that speaks to the fundamental constraint on importation which yep. is um, that, um, essentially cargo that you fly to the moon or to Mars will be, uh, paid for by weight. Um, and, uh, and, and also there's not, you know, hopefully there's a very large pipeline of, of uh, the ability to move stuff to Mars. Like we're talking thousands or hundreds of thousands of tons uh, of stuff rather than say tens of kilograms. Um, but, but it's not infinite, right? So that's, that's, one major constraint and then the other major constraint is the labor scarcity constraint and so that comes down to like how hard is a thing to make how difficult is something to produce um and and the way i've categorized that is in the um the cost per person per year so how much how much money does a person typically spend on one of these items uh per person per year um and the reason for that is that is that cost uh is is a First of all, it's quite available. You know, you can figure out what the cost of something is quite easily by looking it up in a catalog. Yep. Um, and and second, it's a it's a pretty good analog. Uh, it's a pretty good um, yeah. Cost is a pretty good um, index on on how hard something is to actually make. Um, so you take all these different things and you you throw them on a scatter plot um where on the vertical axis you have the uh the annual cost in in dollars per, per person and yeah. then on the horizontal axis you have the annual consumption in kilograms per person um and what you find is that you kind of have this this broad swath that goes off and up to the right uh and at the top right you have things like water uh and actually the per capita consumption of water is incredibly high um and the per capita um cost of water is extremely low because uh water is generally like in terms of its uh, manufacture or you like it's it's a recycled product and we're able to move it around with canals quite easily um, and just to just to make this uh explicit um the on, on in the united states people use a million tons sorry a thousand tons of water per year um, is is the per capita consumption and a lot of that is in agriculture um, but a thousand a thousand tons per person uses about three tons a day um it's, it's just a it's a lot of water so obviously like importing three tons of water per person per day to the moon is is a non-starter like it would cost uh more than a billion dollars per person just to import that much stuff uh yep. assuming assuming like all of spacex's wildest dreams come true and it's only 100 bucks a kilogram mm-hmm. to import uh to import stuff so uh, that's kind of on the extreme right hand end and other things that are also um on the right hand end include things like uh, fuel oxygen concrete aggregate rubble <clears throat> nitrogen hydrogen steel uh bricks ceramics um basic ceramics uh and then yeah so that's it's basically like uh, a class of things where people use more than a ton of it per year um and and bear in mind that in mars if we're asking our people on mars to be more productive than on earth then their baseline consumption will also be higher because if their productivity is higher then they're also consuming more materials in order to make more materials um so so broadly speaking anything where a person who weighs about around about 80 kilograms needs more than 1000 kilograms of stuff and so for uh imperial audiences a person is about 150 pounds if they need more than two thousand pounds of of material per year Uh, you would really really rather rather prefer that you're able to make it locally and fortunately if you are in the business of building a mars or a moon base you'd have to do it near a source of water you'd have to do it near a source of oxygen near a source of uh of of raw materials and rocks and stuff uh so so you don't have to make metals out of the rocks but you have to be able to grind them up and Mm -hmm. turn them into cement or concrete for example um so um so essentially when we think about you know the first generation mars base even the first generation mars base would have to be able to produce enough electricity to be able to uh, process these materials and make them locally using what's called in situ resource utilization yep um the next the next class of materials are things where people use I'd say between one kilogram and a thousand kilograms per year. So that's between two pounds and 2000 pounds. Although frankly, uh, this is all order of magnitude anyway. Um, and, and then the annual cost, the annual expenditure, if you like on earth, uh, for these things would be between a, a, a dollar per person per year and, and up to, you know, a couple of thousand dollars per person per year, uh, which is typically what, what someone in the West would spend on food. Um, and obviously on Mars, these things are harder to make. And so they'd cost you more. Um, but maybe not a whole lot more, depending on what they are. Um, and um and then, obviously, importing these things also costs more because yes. you uh, even though you only pay the earth manufacturing cost, you also have to pay the importation cost, um which works out to hundred bucks uh, around about one hundred bucks per kilogram in this in this particular instance, uh, although you could change that number if you wanted to. um and so uh, for um for items with a low uh, cost density, right? So like bricks, for example, cost less than one hundred dollars per kilogram. Um, the importation really hurts because most of what you're paying for is the importation cost. But if you're if you're trying to uh, obtain something which actually costs a lot more um, per kilogram, such as a flash memory chip or something like that, um, then the importation cost barely adds any cost to the to the uh, to, to the overall cost on Mars. It's actually uh, probably much much cheaper to import, for example, uh, computer chips um, to Mars than to try and produce them locally because local production costs will be much higher. Uh, and in fact materials that or, or items that fall into this category are typically ones where the supply chain on earth involves flying things around so if the if the materials that go into your mobile phone are transported between say australia china and the united states and europe by airplane um then that's a pretty good sign that they'll they'll be quite hard to manufacture cost effectively on mars but mm-hmm. in the middle we have these we have a whole bunch of materials which are typically transported by ship on earth um they're not necessarily sourced locally um, it is quite unusual for example on earth to have large-scale importation of water um, by ship, yeah. um, certainly not by plane. No. Um, but it is quite common, for example, to have uh, importation of steel or raw bulk materials or oil, um, or obviously like uh, things that have a relatively low cost of goods in transit, um cloth clothing, for example. Uh, this is stuff that moves around by container um in in ships. So i I can just kind of list a, a whole bunch of materials, a whole bunch of things here. We've got um let's see i'm just looking at a, at a diagram here we've got uh, fasteners so like screws and bolts we've got um carbon dioxide uh well we don't use that much of it but there's plenty of that on mars uh textiles uh finished textiles electric motors aluminium aluminium is an interesting case because it it uh, aluminum for american orders uh, american listeners um requires a lot of energy to make it okay. um bearings um glass fertilizer plastics uh sulfuric acid um ethene uh, various other chemicals. Um, so these are the ones that you would probably import initially. You can't imagine like day one on Mars uh, stepping out and being like, oh, I better set up the screw factory. Um, no, you you just import screws. But then over time, once you have the ability to make steel locally or uh, uh, aluminum locally, then you would start to produce materials, uh, produce items from those raw materials locally um, that that you needed in very large numbers. And if you're in the process of of building an extremely large station, you know, it's an extremely large base where the surface area is measured in millions of square feet, then you would have to, um, you'd have to produce most of the raw materials uh, to produce those stations locally. So that includes just, things just like... Just um, for a
0: reference point, yeah, sorry, because point. I, I agree, no, no, sorry, I agree with you. I, I work with Marisk for about five years. So the largest okay. shipping company yeah. in the world. And I, I'm very familiar with the transit times from from Asia to uh, to Rotterdam and what we would ship. And I've been on the ships themselves. The... Yeah.
1: You, you're Fabulous completely. Machines.
0: Fabulous machines, and it's amazing. You'll have on a, a an 18,000 container ship, you'll have 13 people, that's it. And even the way they steer yes. it is absolutely fascinating. When you see one of those large ships, I don't know if you, you, when you look at them, they tend to have this one large, from end side to side uh, center uh, station for them to live in. And the reason is when they're up there and they're managing it, they actually steer the ship in the center but when they want to, when they want to do something that they need to be close to the left side, they there's another steering column on the left, and there's another one on the right, so they can move into port properly. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Yeah. and yes. and and their their engines are the are so massive. I mean, they're just enormous, enormous, enormous. Yeah, like so six-story yeah, building. Yeah, they're just fascinating. The uh, when you're, it's easy to hear what you're saying. And, and it yes. makes it jump a timeline sequence very quickly. So, and, and mm. this is just a perception that I hear. We can bring this, but then we can get to this. On earth, if we were to say, if I was to say to you, we're going to set up a society right now and, and it's going to be brand new and we're going mm. to have to put in place a water treatment center, put in place. And by the way, there we there's somebody I might be talking to about how they don't work, but. Uh, 90% mm-hmm. of the water I heard on earth is not treated, which is uh, fascinating that that doesn't happen in the way we think it does. But if I said, do you have yeah, to put in a treatment? Plants. Uh, yeah. Right. It's, uh, I think the number of treatment plants, it's over 90% of the water we drink is just treated by biological treatments that exist in nature, not by systems that work effectively to clean and uh, our water. It's really a, a number. Even New York City doesn't just start putting online, but most of it's done through swamplands and other places. But get to my point is that if I was to say to you on earth, I want you to build a city and I want you to start it off and I want you to put in place... Some of these things, you know, a place for people to live. They can have a home. They can. Uh, they they have to bring in some parts and supplies: fasteners, CO two, uh, textiles, motors, uh, aluminum, aluminum bearings, glass. I want you to. We're going to help you ship that, and then we want you to set up a factory to do all of this, or a mechanism to be able to replicate and do it yourself to feed the size yeah. of the society, which will have to grow. In today's times, it'll decrease over time in terms of optimization and, and advances. You're, this, is a lo, this is not a five-year, seven-year, 12-year endeavor. You took a jump from uh, a group of individuals who need these things, and now you're jumping to, in my mind, 40 years later.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that's a very fair argument, and in fact, we're we're going to come to that soon. Okay, uh, as long right as right now I'm, I'm painting the picture, which is optimistic, and then I'm going to add a add a dose of, of cold water and, and harsh reality <laughs> yeah. to that.
0: As you know, but, I don't um, I don't know where you're going, so I this is my
1: just yeah. running through my head.
0: I'm saying there's a timeline yeah. component in here. You're not talking about a seven year or twelve year. Endeavor, you're saying over time for a society to be able to reach this, and it could be a hundred years to get to some of these things that you're saying are going to be resupplied and yeah. are going to be well, manufactured
1: fastest, on premise. The fastest any nation has managed to industrialize thus far is about one and a half generations, and that's that's really fast. So, like Britain industrialized over seven generations, uh, for example. Um, but more recently we're getting faster at it. And part of the reason for that is that we've already figured out how to do it. Um, but even so, like if you wanted to be serious about saying, well, first of all, we have to build out our ability to process raw material, that's right? yep. going to take a few years. And then we have to build out our ability to to take that raw material and then turn it refine it into steel. That's going to take a few years. And then we have to have, have the ability to t- take the refined steel and turn it into the, into like, absolutely say like low grade steel components. So like beams and screws and fasteners and bolts and things like that. That's going to yeah. take a few years. And then, in order to go from that to like, um, you know, essentially having the ability to produce, say, ninety-nine percent of the mass you'd need to build your own um, pressure containers and things on Mars um, or on the Moon, that would also take a few years because, in addition to, you know, essentially the membrane which contains the pressure and and um, and airlocks and doors and seals and and mm-hmm. precision surfaces and and valves and control systems and all that kind of stuff, you know, there's there's basically a lot of different moving parts that are needed there. And um, at the, and that, yet at the same that, you know, time, you've all the, made it- you're tossing like in a to, ton yeah. of
0: assumptions. You're you're tossing in the assumption, for example, on Earth, that you will have the ecosystem, which could be engineers who understand this. You'll uh, you'll understand on Earth, it would be what it, what are the conditions you're working on oxygen, mm. uh, the, the normal on Mars or Moon. You have to then step back and say, we don't know if this piece of equipment that we have used for fifty years on Earth even with all the proper assumptions, going back to that forward slash and an asterisk, that we've Hmm. made the calculations properly, that we came out at 100 degrees Celsius that we need to do this, and it's actually 100.137. And because we didn't hit 137, everything we transported, everything we had designed
1: into it, even though we thought we were great, we missed. And that adds timelines. So one of the reasons that you want to build the the environment on the Moon or on Mars to be as Earth-like as possible, so basically a giant terrarium with sleeves environment, is that um, the number of modifications you need to make to existing industrial machinery is is much lower. So so, um, basically you need to change maybe the configuration of pumps or or uh, coolant mm-hmm. feed systems to compensate for the fact that the gravity is lower. In these places, and then also if the atmosphere that you that you use is of a lower pressure, then then that reduces the amount of uh, heat that you can transport away easily. So you have to upsize the cooling systems, but it's much much easier to take, for example, uh, a washing machine or a CNC mill or something, and and adapt it to work at a lower lower gravity. Um, and you can even test that uh, in a limited way on Earth uh, reasonably well. Uh, then to say, well, we need the CNC machine, and it's got to work uh, outside on Mars or outside on the surface of the Moon, where half the time it's exposed to 400 degrees Celsius from the direct Sun, and the other half of the time it's cryogenically cold when when the Moon is facing away from the Sun. When the surface okay, of the moon so, is facing so away from the Sun, what so what you've, that's what kind you've of the ch- ch- challenge there.
0: Okay, but what you've just articulated, which I didn't hear before, and I'm not picking on you, I'm learning. Is you didn't bring up this whole entire build the ecosystem of, build the terrarium, build the life space so that we minimize the need for adaptation. And if we include that as a variable, if I said to you on Earth, look, we're going to put up this building, it's going to be a 10-story building, it's going to house 100 people, it's going to have uh, several off rooms off on the side of it to be able to do X, Y, and Z. We, we put all that together, and I said, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And we need to put a dome over the whole thing and have it act like this environment. The yeah. first part was tough enough. Now you've said, we need a dome over this? What are you talking about a dome? oh, it's going to have to be uh, 150 meters high or 200 meters wide. It's going to have to be able to clear and do the following. You'd say, well, that alone is a, a big challenge.
1: Yeah. And so well, actually, that's, that's, that's that's the last point in my in my chart. Maybe I should have gone back to front. No, um, no, 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 sorry, no, no, like no, eight, no, no. Yes.
0: I, to, I, I, I told you that we're we're talking. I'm asking questions as they come to my head we don't know where we're going. So this is perfect. What you're doing is perfect. So if I'm saying what you're saying, so tell me what you think or the process to get to this point or wherever you want to
1: take me, because you're saying it perfectly. Okay. So I just, I just want to kind of wrap up this like um, development prioritization point, which is essentially deciding what order you build things in. And and it's not really a genius statement to say like, oh, well, you start off making the, the stuff that's easy to make that you need a lot of. And then over time, you gradually make more stuff that is harder to make and you don't need as much of um but then you know there's kind of this class of of things that um you know your plausible and lifetime consumption is like less than 100 kilograms so you could actually uh, plausibly import a lifetime supply with you when you when you first went to when you first went to the moon or mars and so there's there's no real need to make it locally because uh, a it's really hard to make um and b um, you just don't need that much of it. Like the importation costs are extremely low. If you're in the process of importing, you know, 80 kilograms of human plus, you know, 20 kilograms of personal effects and underwear and food to keep them alive on the trip, um, and you know, and, and various things, then it's not really a big a big deal to like shove an envelope full of like spare computer chips uh, in amongst their gear, um, and that would be enough for them for a lifetime. So just in that category of things like um, gold, uh, morphine, uh, Tylenol, uh, various <laughs> kinds of processed food, flash memory. Um, yeah, computer chips, uh, basically things like that. Yep. So, uh, and and obviously there's there's that's not a complete nor exhaust exhaustive list, but but anything where your annual consumption is less than about a hundred grams, which is uh, what's a hundred grams like five ounces or something. But yep. you know, just mm-hmm. pick pick some small number of ounces. It doesn't really matter. Uh, you could you could bring a lifetime supply with you. And so, while it is probably worthwhile to have the ability to make any of that locally on Mars in in small and inefficient batches, um. You know, going into full scale production of like a morphine factory on Mars is certainly like a long term problem. Yep. Um anyway, so that's that's kind of the thing there. Um to go back to our chart, uh, we're going yep. to we're going to skip over point six because it's I, I realized it's redundant with point seven, which is the Iceland case study. So we've talked about how
0: what just by, you know, quick, maybe, what is Iceland? Right, you don't have, we don't have to go into detail. What was the
1: Iceland case study?
0: Well, we're about to describe it. Oh, okay. You said, we're, so we're not going to, we're skipping over six, which is the environmental, it's, it's the five and Facility six that you, you reordered.
1: Ability. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm making it up so I go alone now. No, no. I love um, it. I love it. This is, I, the conversation I, has changed a bit.
0: Yeah. I, I have, I'm on page 13 of notes. So it's great. It's great. Okay. Well, you only got three pages left. Um, no, no, no. I I actually have about 70 pages underneath it. So
1: yeah. Okay. Don't worry. <laughs> I might have to get another glass of water. Um. So the, the Iceland case study um, is is an example that I kind of wrote a blog about a few years ago. Um, I happen to know a couple of Icelanders, um, and they referred me to these incredible websites that the Icelandic government has made that that basically have uh, comprehensive information on the Icelandic economy. And I was like, this is super interesting because Iceland uh, has been occupied by humans for more than a thousand years. Um, it has um, it's got a, a strong kind of tradition of self reliance. The population is about three hundred and sixty thousand people, so somewhat less than a million, but at the same time. The the environment on Iceland is somewhat more mild um, than the surface of the moon. Um, yeah. There's breathable air. There's fresh water available. There's uh, plenty of fish in the ocean, um, and and there's plenty of rocks and ice and lichens and tundra and stuff there as well. It's it's much more uh, a much less hostile environment um, than um, than than the moon, uh, yeah. but it's also quite isolated. Um, and so uh, it's worth noting noting that prior to industrialization, In Iceland the population there did wax and wane quite a lot uh there was an eruption in the 1850s I think maybe the 1840s uh that killed like a third of the population um which is kind of horrific um so you know it is it is it's kind of an isolated and a very marginal place for humans to live in many ways and and prior to industrialization and prior to um, modern technology the people there did live pretty difficult lives um with very limited access to technology They had obviously they had wool. they had the ability to make small amounts of steel um, from from what's called bog iron, um which is not not used today anymore. We don't make steel that way. but if you needed it, you could make enough for swords and knives and things, uh, which is important to Icelanders. Um, and they have they had access to wood. In fact, they cut down nearly all the forests uh, on Iceland over a few hundred years. Um, so so it's an interesting, very interesting place. Um, and and then of course, there's this treasure trove of data available and and we've just spent you know an hour and a half talking about how you could potentially, um, you know, build a self-sustaining city on, on the moon or on Mars with only a million people and it might take you 30 years and and maybe a million tons of stuff. And I say, okay, let's make this real. Let's talk about Iceland. Iceland has 360,000 people. By and large, they're some of the best educated people on earth. Um, your challenge is to take one of your 18,000 container, container ships that you used to work on at Marysk, uh, which has a cargo capacity of, um, I don't know, what does that work have to be? Like 600,000 tons or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can put whatever you want in those containers in fact you can delete all the containers and just pile the deck up with anything you want any material you want any food you want anything cost is no object you can fill it up with cnc machines you can fill up with nuclear reactors it's your choice but you get one ship right one ship's worth of stuff which is plausibly as much as we could possibly hope to ship to the moon or mars with starships over the next 50 years mm-hmm. um one container ship's worth of stuff uh it's like you know 100,000 rocket launches is about one container ship's worth of stuff. Um, and then what you're going to do is you're going to sail that container ship to Iceland and you're going to beach it on the shore at Reykjavik. Um, and and then after that, the island is cut off. It's cut off from the rest of the world. Um, obviously, it can still connect by radio. Um, so you can still talk to the Europeans. You can still talk to the Americans. Uh, but no further transport of materials uh, in and out of the island is allowed. And your challenge is to slow down the inevitable reversion of Icelandic quality of living back to like 1700s era um with like short lifespans and no dental care um as for as long as possible with only one container ship worth of stuff what do you put on board and and you know what are the key things and actually the key thing you run out of first is fuel Iceland doesn't produce its own fuel so it only has a, a couple of months supply um and so once that runs out well now none of your cars work very little of your heating works properly electricity doesn't work properly unless some in some places there's hydroelectricity there um but okay so you've got a hydroelectric power plant that's great but but you know it has parts and the parts wear out how are you going to get new bearings to operate your turbines how are you going to get lubricants to operate operate the turbines um how are you going to replace relays and contacts switch switches and and refine aluminium and copper to uh to make new wires you know it becomes this kind of Enormous headache, logistical challenge. It's, and if you it's think compounding it's possible, just co- compounding set of conditions, every time you ask a question, you have another yeah. question. yeah, exactly. it's it's I'm not saying it's an unsolvable problem, but it's definitely a very difficult problem. And the thing is not only is it a very difficult problem, it's also a much, much easier problem than doing this on the moon or on Mars, like way easier. Mm. Um, so because because we already know that that uh, the environment in Iceland can sustain a small population, a smaller population indefinitely at a lower technological level. And this is kind of where that point six environmental hostility and population stability comes in. So it turns out that um, for a given level of technology and a given level of environmental hostility, uh, either it is possible to sustain a population or it isn't. Um, so if you say, for example, if you back off the environmental hostility, maybe you can support some people. If you gradually increase the environmental hostility, so say you've got Iceland, but then over time it's getting colder and colder and colder, or perhaps your technology is regressing over time. So your, your ability to make advanced technology is is being lost. And this has occurred throughout human history. Uh, you know, When small populations get isolated, they lose technology. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then over time, the ability of of your technology to sustain your population diminishes um and actually it can undergo what's like a catastrophic phase shift um where where actually you can't sustain the population like how to put this there are environments that are hostile enough that once your technology drops below a certain level no one can live there at all yep right and so and so you ha- then then you go from like gradual population declines due to starvation and illness to catastrophic population declines uh due to like everyone freezing to death overnight kind of situation yep. um and so So that's kind of the situation that you have by default, um, even in a place like Iceland, let let alone in space, uh, where where there's kind of a minimum population, you need to sustain your technology. um, And then there's a minimum level of technology needed to sustain your population. And if you're not on the the right side of both of those curves, you're in deep shit. Um, And so yeah, I, just, I think that's kind of just an interesting thing to think about, and you have to say, well, what is what is the minimum technology set you need to survive on Mars, and, and how many people do you need to sustain that technology? Not just the knowledge, but also the ability to produce it and to produce it uh, efficiently in large quantities and at relatively low cost. Um, and and certainly, like if Iceland had this challenge, it would be an enormous headache um we're seeing even now that like as a result of sanctions levied against Russia which is a much larger country that was in many ways industrially self-sufficient for periods of its history uh, in the last century um you know it has you know since since the fall of the Soviet Union completely lost the ability to operate any so to build almost any of its own technology uh, all of its manufacturing is dependent on foreign imports yeah. uh, all of its oil production is dependent on foreign contractors uh, and expertise um it's it's a really you know it's a really really thorny problem and, and and russia is a country of nearly 100 million people I think with with a long-standing tradition of technical excellence um unfortunately diminished in recent years no i think Whereas it's iceland about is a, a tiny fly island of three hundred thousand people
0: i, I think it's that russia is more like russia?
1: 130 million people uh it's falling really quickly sorry 144, 1 million people yeah i, I, I stand it's, corrected it, yeah um, so it's it's, it's double the way it's falling just the, just the
0: way i remember it it's almost yeah. double france so france has twice the gdp and half the
1: population of Russia. So just use that as your math, and it's yeah. pretty close. Okay, um, yeah, that's I like that. Uh, France it, is also, its population is still increasing. France is one of the few developed countries that still has a lot of children, so had a lot of their own children. And, <laughs> and children, and they I like how you say they have a lot of children and their own children. <laughs> well, I mean,
0: there are it's countries just- that-
1: that, yeah. uh, import
0: children, essentially. Yeah, I understand um, that, but it was just an interesting phraseology, if you want to think about it. Yeah, France has a lot of children, yeah, and yeah. they have a lot of their own
1: children. It, it's not the way I was thinking you were going to say it. Uh, Whereas, well, I mean, I, I, I raise my own children, for example. Like, you know, yeah. Um, as, as a as a, an interesting exercise in masochism. Um, if they're listening to this, I love you, kids. Um, but um, and my my but, kids would yeah. say, "You didn't actually raise us; it was mom." Well, exactly, but. But um, in this case, my wife and I try and try and split the. No, no, we we've the, been um, together. It was my, I've been together with my wife for now thirty five. We were married. Congratulations. Thirty
0: seven years. Okay, so you you got married before I was born. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. So yes, we we were no, we were not married before you we were born. We've been together. So we
1: oh um, together okay yeah. If we've been together for thirty some odd years, so yes. I don't want to think about what the playlist was at your wedding. I mean, it's just horrifying. Um, uh, <laughs> The 1980s. Yeah. Um, uh, no, we were. Yes, it was
0: uh, 1990s. We got married. Okay. No, well, no, 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 I no, no. I wasn't married. <laughs> but we were married. Don't, don't tell my wife this. I always. But I'll tell you a short, quick story, and we get back to it. I forget. I don't remember dates. It's not something that I try. I try to as much as I can. I don't remember birthdays that easily. And one year, I missed my. She wasn't married to me. I missed my uh, fiance's girlfriend's date. Her birthday, and she was very upset. So next year I want to make You're it up to her. Yeah. I know I wanted to make it up to okay. her next year, and I put together one hell of a surprise party. And I called her my father-in-law and said, We would like you to come. We'd like you to be at the party. And she said, He said, Wow, that she is going to be surprised. And I said, I know, I really don't want her to know. And I was playing along. And he says, That hey, you don't understand how surprised she's going to be. And he's egging me on. And then he says, Just so you know, her birthday's not till next month. So I completely missed the month. And when she heard
1: that, she just burst out laughing and said, I understand. You're fine. So I completely okay. missed the month. Well, you're a fortunate man. Um, <laughs> my 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 spouse does not like surprises at all. And and I was informed that if I if I planned a surprise party, I would be divorced uh, or something. So that also um, that
0: was also part of the conversation. She w- does not want a surprise. Never. So yeah, same thing. Uh no so okay. So getting, uh, yes, Russia, France.
1: All right. Um, yeah, so as the Iceland case study, you can also do a similar case study where you say, well, I can provision an aircraft carrier with anything you want. You can put as many people on it as you want. Then you have to anchor it in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And your challenge is to make the people on, on it, like the last person die as late as possible kind of thing. Like how long can you keep people alive on, an, on a stranded aircraft carrier with provisioned with anything you want? So it's a very, very large ship. It's got a big flat deck. You can put yep. a lot of dirt on there and grow plants and things. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> the hull will rust and it will crack and then it will sink. And that'll happen, you know, within the lifetime of the first generation of people who are living on it. So it's, um, you know, if you don't have the ability to obtain new steel and to repair it, um, no matter how much spare parts you bring, it's just a matter of time. And so, you know, it's just, it's just an interesting, interesting, Um
0: It's an, it's an interesting challenge. You know, I was going to ask you this afterwards, but I'll ask it now. I'll, when you're thinking of the question you're asking there's a, and what i hear and i'm trying to phrase this properly what i hear is the question kind of of uh, sustainability how do you create a new society off planet uh, how do you, off earth how do you how do you meet this need and mm. my first take the, I've said it on the podcast before, my first take was never that. Mine was, what if we really live between moon and earth? We, we exist between the moon and earth. And again, I didn't know enough about it when I came up with this question. I said, the, we need the moon for tides, for biological cycles. Even if you look back in uh, prehistoric, uh, not prehistoric, but old history, that you hunted to the moon's light, you traveled because you could use the moon. It's, it's a part of our ecosystem. Mm. And so yes. I, my mind immediately said, no, no, no. Instead of thinking of us living on Earth, we, la- we live between this construct called mirth. Now, uh, and I'm trying to remember his name and it'll come to me. Burton Lee and I were in San Francisco. We were at a place across from scratch and I'm saying, moon and earth, moon and earth. We got moon and earth. And I'm putting my hands together closer and closer and he looks at me and says, mirth? What if that construct of mirth is that, we, If you change the paradigm and say, this is really the land that we live in, this is the space, the geography we live in, and we leveraged both of them, no different than old explorers would consider that they were going to find an, a, an extension of their where they live or a faster path, and you, you, you escape this whole belief structure that it's independent, that that, that doesn't even cross your mind. And you you ask the question, how do you make this ecosystem thrive? And that's the question we work on. Mm. Does that make it, you understand that the the, the yeah. question just, is very different? Caution,
1: yeah, I would just caution um, making analogies to kind of explorers during the age of exploration because by and large they were, you know, the ships, the ships themselves are dangerous and they didn't have very advanced navigation technology, mm-hmm. but the, the lands that they discovered were already, by and large, occupied by humans who already yeah. lived there and and lived there quite successfully. Thank you very much. Up to a constant, uh, up to a constant in smallpox. Um, so, um, it's it's a little bit different. Um, but I know it's different. I'm asking question. I like the um, I like the, the concept, the conceptual yeah, framework.
0: I was just asking. You're you're extremely bright, and I I, I love learning from you. I, I, I get so many kind of directional needles, if you want to say. The one piece that keeps on coming back as I hear your language, and I do pay attention to language, is your language tends to be in a slightly different direction. It's not that you're arguing the full point. So let's just say we're 100% in the same, where one is at 100 degrees and the other one is 99. Everything else is the same. But that difference is, if you were taking a laser beam and pointing it at to the moon, and you moved it one centimeter left or one centimeter right, you're going to miss the moon. We are just different. So I'm asking the question: Why that question? Why do you go that way? What are you solving for? Does that make sense? Did I ask that right?
1: Well, I mean, for me, it's just been this kind of exploration of ideas around you know this seemingly impossible goal, Um, and then. they're just using the tools that i've been trained to do uh to to kind of understand aspects of that problem um and just try and find insights you know like uh, if someone says uh, casey what what is the what is the um the cargo manifest going to be for the first 10 flights i I don't know you know like that's (laughs) like i could could take a stab at it but i don't really know but if someone says you know casey is it more important that the manifest for the first 10 flights has you know uh food and and you know, some building materials than, than it has, uh, you know, the entire thing composed exclusively of, of, uh, Tylenol. And I'd say, well, you know, I think it's probably, <laughs> probably more reasonable to, to include materials that you're going to need a lot of. Um, but, but the over, the overwhelming message, if you like, is that, is that I, I would rather not have to choose. I would rather just have post scarcity cargo transport capacity. Um, okay. and that's, that's kind of, I think where, where the people who are actually doing this work and not just kind of speculating on Twitter late at night, like I do, um, kind of uh concentrating their efforts um which oh, kind of leads into the okay. into the last the last topic which is, which is starship and and the nine missing technologies so so starship is kind of without starship the whole the whole thing is moot right without starship the iceland thought experiment is container ships don't exist so you can't even get the material to iceland to even have a go um because it's it's hard to overstate just how different starship is compared to our existing rockets even the really good ones uh but, but starship you know, is basically it's designed to be a logistical system, a conveyor belt, that just transports large quantities of material from Earth to other places, um, yeah, you know, at 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 the lowest possible cost, at the highest possible cadence. Uh, no questions asked, no frills, no nothing. Just it just you know, eats eats cargo one end and dumps it out the other, and um and that's so different from how rockets work right now, uh, which mm-hmm. is that it, they all the, individual a, it's the manufacturing, care and feeding and.
0: Right. It's the it's the
1: line. We we're just gonna t- yeah. you put
0: it into a container, it doesn't matter what it is, it's harsh it conditions. We're gonna bring it there. It's gonna take 32 days to get from Hong Kong to Rotterdam. And in 32 days, you will know that your package will your your container will be there. We won't guarantee yeah. what's inside of it. it. We're not gonna we're not gonna ensure that you have to take care of it. It's gonna be tough, but in 32 exactly. days, you're gonna get it.
1: Yeah. Yes. So I don't have to explain that to you because you've worked in logistics. A lot of people don't really think about where this stuff comes from, um, but but essentially, you know, Paul Wooster, who's one of the architects of Starship, uh, you know, pointed out in a talk he gave a few years ago, which is publicly available uh, at a Mars Society conference, that um, that, as I said before, mass covers a lot of sins, you know, you don't have to be all that clever and you don't want to be all that clever, you want to focus your cleverness on, on more important problems uh, for mass, op- mass optimization, um, whereas if you look at why it is that Mars rovers for example right now cost a billion dollars to make it's because you need a team of like 200 different experts in different things figuring out how to fit what would ordinarily consume several rooms of a large research building into you know essentially the front seat of a small car um and that's really really hard to do but if you don't have to worry about mass anymore it's no it's no longer that hard to do it's it's actually something where where there's an existing supply chain for a lot of that stuff um you know in the form of of uh, robotic mining machinery that works in in very hostile environments that are not that different in terms of you know chemical treatments and and acidity and corrosion and so on than, than the surfaces of Mars or, or the Moon. It's just right now, if you said, oh, well, I want to dump a um a Caterpillar mining excavator on the Moon, you have no way of doing it because the, we don't have rockets that can deliver more than a couple of hundred kilograms to the Moon. But yep. once we have a starship, that's 100 tons. You know, there are some machines out there that weigh a lot more than 100 tons, um, like the the giant um bucket wheel excavators that weigh about 15,000 tons. But yes. you could conceivably send those in pieces and assemble them if you really needed them. Um, well, it's I when I see when, I see anyway, but.
0: when I see a 3D printed arm that's 20 meters long, I, 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 my mind just says, okay. First of all, you need a dozer or a mechanism to feed that machine. How big is that going to be? And do we even know? Because the, on Earth, the the soil moves in circles around, and we don't know how the regolith will perform when it's pushed and moved in that way. Uh, how are you going to bring a beam that's that large? And it's got to weigh a lot to be able to do what you're talking about. So you're kind of Mm. asking that same question of the cart before the horse here with size, dumping a caterpillar. How do you do that? We can't do that today.
1: Yeah. Well, certainly not. But I think if Starship is developed and basically performs according to expectations, which is to say, Uh, Rapidly reusable spacecraft is able to do on-orbit refueling. It's able to transport 100 tons or more into low-Earth orbit. And then once it's refueled 100 tons, that same cargo uh, to the moon or to Mars, a lot of these problems go away and we can focus on other more interesting problems. Um, But until that happens, there's not much point thinking about the other problems uh, at scale, I think, um, unless they're incidentally useful for something else. Uh, But there are nine key technology areas that need to be developed in order to make a decent uh, city um, on the moon, or on Mars, or on an asteroid, or something like that, um, that don't currently exist, or if they do, if it does, it's not mature enough to be used. And I'll just list them here. I don't think we've got time to go through all of them, but maybe we can touch on one or two yeah, of them. Yeah, we could pick um, whatever you would like. All nine. Um, yep. Yeah. All nine. Uh, we need a solar farm. So hold on. Hold a, on. Solar farm. Yep. Solar farm. So, so in that case, we basically need the ability to produce uh, solar solar panels. Uh, if we're importing them from Earth, that are incredibly light, like. On order the thickness of a thick sheet of paper uh we can roll them up and unroll them in situ with very low labor inputs and generate a lot of power uh yeah. if we're producing them on mars we don't care about the weight but it's extremely hard to make solar panels i think uh in the early days on mars so so we need to be able to import you know many many megawatts of uh of solar power on mars because the last thing we need is for like the lights to flicker um if we want our humans on mars to be highly productive they have to have unlimited access to electricity um so we need a solar farm um we and, need solar and, better solar yes. farm technology that's also useful on earth because we need to get smarter about deploying solar farms on earth at, at large scale. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, with less, less labor input, we we actually uh, do talk, air... we do talk yeah. about this and we have been talking about that one component. So yes. Hmm. On on Mars, we need an air miner. So that's uh, basically a giant machine uh, with a fan that sucks in air and separates it into, into the different components. So on Mars, that would be carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and, and water vapor, primarily a little bit of um, argon as well um and separate those into their respective fractions for usage later Uh, and so uh, there's not that much water vapor on mars but it may be easier to get water at least initially from from atmosphere from from mars's air Mm -hmm. than to you know go and find a chunk of ice somewhere and melt it um that said point three is we need a water miner so ideally we would be able to put a city on mars on top of an artesian hot spring you know like a subsurface liquid water that we could drill into and suck water out of uh at in semi-infinite quantities i'm talking like if we want to create and then fill an artificial lake that should be straightforward i'm not talking like oh no we need to recycle this bottle of water because we only have like you know 400 moles of water on the entire station i'm talking like we need gushes gushes of water flying to the surface and, and forming snow and, and just there's no shortage of it because again mm-hmm. every industrial process you've ever heard of uses a lot of water yes. and and making it use less water is a huge pain in the ass um and so if we don't have a a geothermally heated um, source of liquid water, then the next best would probably be a glacier, um, you know, a, a large a large patch of old ice uh, that we can build what's called a rod well in, which is you drill a hole and then you melt the water and suck it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you pump in hot water and then suck out some some fresh water. Um, you know, go, going out and like chewing up dirt and melting the water out of it, I think is probably not scalable. Um, that said, point four is we need rock miners. So on Mars, it's probably plausible to assume that we'll be able to locate areas which have... Um, Many of the metals that we need close to the surface, because you know on Mars there weren't any, um, you know, Iron Age or Bronze Age people running around taking all the good stuff. Um, it's still it's still lying out there on the surface, um, and a lot of these materials, p- particularly what I call the siderophiles, which are the um, the iron loving ones, are uh, uh, basically commonly found in in metal metallic meteorites. And the surface of Mars is much older than Earth's, and so the surface should be strewn with the remnants of meteorites. Uh, so if you find if you find a good a good fall somewhere, then then perhaps you can you can scoop up what you need on the surface without having to drill a huge mine shaft deep underground. Uh, but that said, you still have to be able to go out and like crunch up rocks and mm-hmm. throw them in a in a giant truck and drive them to a, a refinery somewhere.
0: Um, I, I, that was a rock quarry. That's what we did. We took yeah.
1: 22,000 yeah. tons of stone and made them into all these different sizes. So yes. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it'd be amazing if you if you were in a place that had like a local source of iron and a source of aluminum and a source of like uh, copper and tin and silver and molybdenum and lead, and um, and maybe some scar with titanium in it. And then, you know, while we're at it, it'd be good if there was a gold deposit. But I mean, real, realistically speaking, you might get lucky on, say, two or three of those axes, but the others, either you'll have to go further afield and set up a remote mining site, or you have to import it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see. That's Those sorts of surveys haven't even been performed yet. Um, so there are some candidate landing sites uh, which have probably access to the sort of water you need which is the most important thing um, in arcadia planitia um, but um but in terms of like doing detailed surveys uh close to the surface there hasn't been done so we don't really know uh what's on the surface be it, be, below like a thin layer of dust that you can see an image from orbit uh, everything's covered in a little bit of dust which makes figuring out what's underneath more, more challenging um, Okay, 0.5 is a fuel plant, so you need the ability to convert carbon dioxide and water into fuel, and by that I mean synthetic hydrocarbons. And I've actually I founded a company to do that here on Earth because I think that we should be making hydrocarbons out of CO2 in the air rather than getting it out of the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, but on Mars, it's it's super important because there almost certainly isn't any hydrocarbons on Mars. Sometimes I I uh, I tell my geologist friends that the recurrent slope lineae which are these uh, seasonal kind of seeps that we see on Mars are not water. They're hydrocarbons, but I don't think anyone believes that least of all me, but it is fun to watch their faces. Um, But, (laughs) but in any case you need hydrocarbons because if you don't have hydrocarbons, it's not that you need them for fuel necessarily. You can have electricity and a lot of the electricity usage on Mars will be fixed machinery. So you can just plug it in. Um, But uh, you do need um, hydrocarbons for plastics. You need them for chemicals. You need them for, you know, uh, yeah essentially essentially all the other stuff that we like that is um that is cheap and made of plastics and, and things like plastics paints uh insulation you know anything that isn't made of metal essentially is made of hydrocarbons um we probably wouldn't be making much out of wood at least not initially uh you could conceivably you know build build a series of giant domes and plant trees in them that would grow up and be you know giant sequoia forest on mars and that'd be pretty neat and you could have a, a forestry a division of the industry there but at least not initially um okay so point six is life support so it's not that different from an air miner, except it works inside the yeah. the dome or inside the uh, the habitat. And what it does is it it basically ingests ingests the air and it scrubs out contaminants, it scrubs out CO two, it scrubs out water vapor, uh, and and refreshes the air. And this technology exists right now. It exists in submarines. It exists in spacecraft. Um, it exists in specialized mining applications. And and in in some sense exists in the form of air conditioning in most buildings uh, in the West. But um, the sort of systems that would be reliable enough and have low enough labor requirements, you know, maintenance requirements and stuff to work on Mars is is, is not really uh, not really mature. Um, the the technology that's used for life support um, in nuclear submarines, it's used in uh, spacecraft on the space station. It's it's very old technology at this point. It was developed in the 1980s in some cases. Um, I can't speak to the specific, specifics of nuclear submarines. I don't know when that was developed, but but in any case, it's certainly not like how would we do this in 2030 uh, level level technology, yes, um, particularly on the space station. It breaks down all the time, uh, which is which is a non-starter because labor is so expensive. You don't want to spend labor like constantly fixing things. You want things to be a bit more reliable. It doesn't matter if they consume more power. It doesn't matter if they consume more raw materials. Right? You can always vent waste gases outside into the environment, provided yes. you have enough input gases to top it back up again. Um, Okay. Point seven is heavy machinery telerobotics. So uh, basically, it just says like giant tractors and diggers and trucks and stuff. But instead of having people in the cab driving them around, you have people either in the base or on on the earth driving them around remotely. Um, and ideally, uh, with enough software that you don't actually have to like physically drive them. You can just task them and say, okay, well drive over drive over there, pick up some stuff, and then drive back here. Mm-hmm. And that's as much direction as they need. Um, the reason for that is that you know, the the, ob- the opposite. The opposite kind of extreme of that is you have a a, a poor critter, you know, poor poor person um, outside in a spacesuit with a shovel, you know, trying to dig a hole. Uh, obviously, like that's not going to work. So, so if you want to be able to, you know, move vast quantities of dirt around and uh, and and build your mines, um, and and extract the materials you need and and build build habitats and and get water and you need to have a common so
0: you need to have a sophisticated enough set of technologies to be able to manage
1: that and there are there are well, the way that's done at scale is with giant machines like yes like too large to fit on roads like giant giant well things that, that that's what, what around, the, the, the farming
0: industry has gotten there more than the quarry industry if you want to use the farming yeah, industry yeah. has these class nine harvesters or these large harvesters hmm. and they are run by gps systems and autom- it's more or less automated they, they'll run through the middle of the night they don't need any lights on a person sitting in there they do have people sitting in there but they're they're just doing their job all day, all night to be able to harvest. And a class nine harvester is yeah. one of those type, and then it feeds off to trucks that could all be run automated. But yes,
1: it it's not yeah. gotten to the point that well, sir, you're talking about where you can say, yeah. "Go get it, come back." Well, so the main reason I think that the agricultural systems there are fully automated mines now. Um, there's one built in Western Australia, but the 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 reason that. Um, the reason that, that agricultural equipment is still able to have the person sitting in the cab aside from like the legal responsibility don't run anyone over um is that the per person productivity is very high because instead of having a person out there with a sickle and a scythe, you <laughs> yes. know, cutting down the, the stems they have a giant machine that's 40 feet wide you know eating eating all the eating all the yep. wheat which is great um it's an obvious win uh, so it's mechanization of labor right uh, rather yes. than automation in this case but but the other thing is that like the cost of agricultural labor is not that high like uh, the cost of someone to sit in the cab a, it's not that high and B, it could be quite a bit higher and it wouldn't actually affect the economics of the operation all that much it's just not yeah, that high it's 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 a, a minuscule component they're yeah.
0: there they're, they're there, have, to make sure, there they're there to make sure they're there to make sure more of an observer that it makes the turn at the end properly that the yeah. feeder that's being the trucks that are being fed are being fed properly so yeah. it, they're not there to do function they're there to more or less supervise and they sit in the cab as their office.
1: Yes, yes. Um, but say, say the, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what those agricultural labors get paid. But I would say it's probably on the order of thirty to fifty bucks an hour or something. Yeah, like Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's hour. nothing significant. Um, but on Mars, on Mars, like the per hour labor cost would never be lower than a thousand dollars an hour. So, um, so you'd have to think very carefully about whether you actually want to have a person like in the cab of each machine, you know, out out on the planetarium, like digging up rocks, or if you could yeah. figure out some way of taking them out of the loop.
0: Yeah, my, my point was that it's we haven't gotten there to the point of this fully automated telerobotic system. And the, the and we haven't had that need on Earth. I think there will be some of those changes over the next 40 years just because of population challenges. You brought up the Japanese. We have the, the Chinese uh, challenges with their society and sort of population going down to uh, 600 million or 700 million people. Uh, just because of the yep. curve and the, the one-child policy, and we have it around the world, we have these type of challenges. So I think that the question will be answered if you add on top of it the advances in electronics. I think you'll mm. and software design and and all of the other. No, I don't think it requires any miracles. No, it I doesn't. It, it just requires miracles. the the willpower, um, the need, and today we don't have yeah. it.
1: Well, but the other thing is like if you were, uh, but yeah, there's there's already you know, numerous. Tractor companies, for example, John Deere or, or Caterpillar or whatever that have active R&D divisions that are working on this sort of automation right now. So it's like, yes, it, there's already a profit motive to do it here on the earth. So I think that's like more of a solved problem than say, um, You know, a, a Mars Mars solar farm or something it, it, like that, which my, is mine was just a matter
0: more. of the timeline. It's a solved yeah. challenge, but the ubiquitous and usage of it is still uh, it's not a tomorrow answer. And I think it would be no, easy. I'm for- not saying the
1: problem is solved. I'm saying the development, like. No, no, the, I, would, I didn't. I, sorry necessary for development is a solved problem.
0: No, I didn't say, sorry, right. that was my, my misspeaking. Yeah. What I meant was yeah. it's easy for someone who doesn't understand this category of number seven to make the assumption by saying that they're working on it. Working on it could mean, and it's very easy to go three years, seven years, 10 years before we get to the point of a ubiquitous Mechanism that we that insurance companies, I mean, got an insurance company will ensure that a farmer or a a user will say, I'm willing to invest in that. The scale, scope, sky, price comes down. So it's not a, it's not a, even though it's an exponential growth curve for the ability to do it, it doesn't mean, well, it doesn't mean it will happen. I'll give the, the example that the Boca Chica challenges. With the environmental conditions and the political conditions that are happening down in southern yeah. Texas, were not part of the equation of "we can do it." It was, "Oh, you, we have to answer to something else that we didn't anticipate." Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. All right, we're, we're all. Thank good. you, and
0: all, no worries. We're, we're all good. good. I, I was sitting here thinking, and it's okay if people hear it. I, I love. I love your analysis and the way you've taken some constructs that I don't hear many people discuss, and have broken it down into chunkable uh, positive or negative conditions that allows an individual to be able to, including myself, to be able to say, "Okay, I got where you're going with this." For example, to have the heavy machinery, the life support, or all of these. So I'm I, I love
1: the. Uh, Direction you've taken it, so we're on to eight. You. is That it, All right, Yeah. So that was that was heavy heavy machinery, telerobotics, um, and actually I should state that like all of these areas are things where like uh, SpaceX would have to develop them if no one else did. But if you were a uh, you know an R and D specialist in a company that already did these, uh, it probably wouldn't hurt your business to like spool up an internal division that that is able to figure out how to make these work uh, on the moon or on Mars. So that when it's time for SpaceX to do them, uh, they don't have to vertically integrate in your industry and destroy your market share, um, but I, I so and also this, recruit all your good people. So I, I'm going to take it
0: uh, from a completely different. I, I love what you just said, love it. Mm. However, what you, the the belief then where you started from, it sounded if uh, SpaceX is to, I would say to many I've spoken to in the. Uh, people who are uh, space enthusiasts or in the in the ecosystem, it is a SpaceX will deliver the answer. And instead, it should be that SpaceX is primarily—it's going in the different directions—but primarily a logistics company. And you don't ask the logistics company to also create the manufacturing of the garment and to also create and to also create. What you're saying is stop looking at it, I think. Stop looking at it as that's the solution. It's that you've got an opportunity and and that's where this space is not an industry, it's a geography. That's where that comes from is, it's not difficult for an organization to say if there's a viable ecosystem, if there was insurance that can cover it, if there is uh, an economics, of the study of economics and markets. If you were to say, "Okay, if I took 5% of my research, my R&D, or my efforts, and put it towards this development, I could be a part of another ecosystem. I sell, sell, I'm going to take one of yours. What did you say? You used it. I sell rivets, bolts, you said, used another term. Uh, Fasteners. I make fasteners. Okay. What if you were to say, I'm going to create a hardened steel fastener that can work in a vibration or a tensility or a condition of this. If I create that, now I've got a completely different market. I still am in the fastener business, in the industry of fasteners. And I make fasteners for submarines. I make fasteners for things on land, for example, in uh, farming, as we just talked about. But now I'll make fasteners for high... Um, highly disruptive environments such as uh, taking off and landing or uh, beyond earth where there could be a different type of uh, atmospheric condition so that's the challenge in my mind in many of the in in discussion is it's not about entering the space industry it is about because there is none it's about working in a different geography does that make sense the way I said it
1: yeah, I understand. I, I, I don't know if I would do a, a high tensile, um, oh sorry, like a hardened hard steel fastener. That seems like a bad idea to me, but um, I, I was just an example,
0: uh, because the fasteners came to mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you want your fasteners to have good cracking properties. Um, and, and hardened steels tend to not have those, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a good example The, um, in this case, SpaceX is able to do stuff that other companies are not, and the reason is that SpaceX is the destination of choice for a lot of, not necessarily all of, but a lot of the most ambitious engineers and the best engineers on earth. And as a result, they can make problems that are impossible merely late. Um, and and so you know one of the reasons why, for example, it might be worthwhile for, say, caterpillar, who already spends four billion dollars a year on r and d, to be like, oh yeah, and we're going to make a moon compatible version of our of our of our trucks by making a vacuum compatible power head and upgrading the um, hydraulic hose connectors and switching out the paint and changing the the, the quality of the lubrication used in our seals in our um, in our bearings. And that's basically the main major substitutions you would need, just like a slightly different uh, set of parts, also obtainable through standard supply chains. Um, is that you know, if caterpillar is able to slap nasa or spacex on the side of their uh on the side of their products suddenly they have a recruiting halo and a retention halo that makes it easier for them to go and hire really good people that will help them out innovate their own competition in their conventional markets um and and this was kind of a hypothetical you know 10 years ago when i first started thinking about this but now it's pretty damn obvious that like essentially elon's companies are able to crush the competition um because they just they have an infinite an exhaustive supply of incredibly ambitious. Uh, engineers working and technicians and so on working on their products, which the other companies, if you've seen their products in detail, obviously uh, do not have access to quite the same, same level of, of of ambition. Um, So yeah, I think it's, I think it's a worthwhile thing. That's kind of why I wrote this. I'm
0: I'm going to add another layer on top in 2014, the first time that project moon was created in scratch in Silicon Valley. The example I used when I shared how to build the ecosystem and everything is I used Caterpillar. I yes. used exactly Caterpillar. And uh, so you're you're talking exactly what I had said in 2014 in a different construct and in a different manner. You've, you've articulated a little bit differently tying it to SpaceX, but it's the exact same mode. It's the exact same framework that yes, if you do what you had just mentioned, You open up different opportunities, not just for beyond earth, but you also change because of that paradigm shifting thinking, because of the different questions you're asking. You'll probably in Caterpillar improve remote mining capabilities on earth. You'll probably improve some type of gear technology that could be used in cars. You'll probably be, and there's an amplification of all of that innovation. That's exactly Project Moonhub. It's exactly great. So you're, I'm agreeing with you hundred percent.
1: Number eight. Excellent. Well, up to a point. Um, Number (laughs) eight is pressure structures. Um, What did you say? What what type of structures? Point eight is pressure structures. Pressure structures. um, So when it comes to, you know, in in, figuring out how to enclose and uh, essentially terraform locally, um, you know, millions of square feet of land, it's not quite the problem is not like well how do we make a little a little cylinder like we have in the space station um or how do we dig a hole underground and pressurize it or something it's kind of like how do we uh it's sort of the problem that amazon has when they build a new distribution center which is like how do we take this green field you know uh open space and then enclose it in a giant building as quickly and cheaply as possible um and so in order to get the the surface area that they need uh which is kind of on a similar scale actually um and and so the way the way i think about this is i say well if i don't have to i would rather not move any dirt right because moving dirt is expensive yep. and time consuming if i don't have to i would rather not make the structure out of something really heavy and big right so you could potentially uh enclose the space by by building a vault out of cement and bricks or or, or cement blocks or something um and then and then loading it up with with uh with more dirt on the outside to provide some pressure to to resist the 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 explosive pressure of, of pressurizing the interior um you could certainly do that on the moon and it might be a good idea on the moon to defend against micrometeoroids. but on mars they, they get burned up in the atmosphere so um so you just need to enclose some pressure it would be amazing if it let through natural light because then you could use the space inside for living and growing plants um and uh, you wouldn't have to do artificial lighting um mm-hmm. and it would be you know oh so when you kind of throw all these different ideas in, into the into the box it kind of seems that a tensile structure might be the way to go and a tensile structure a little bit like a suspension bridge as opposed to an arch bridge uses yep. less material because materials are typically uh 10 times stronger in in tension than compression you know, i know engineers listening to this are going to get angry but um but you know <laughs> at, at the, the zeroth, zeroth level that's certainly true um because in tension you don't have to worry about material buckling um and so you say what does a tensile pressure structure look like and it actually looks like an air mattress so, oh, so- really instead of instead of an air mattress um yeah so an air mattress you kind of think of as having like a series of dimples and those dimples correspond to internal pillars uh, that connect one side of the air mattress to the other to stop it turning yep. into a sphere um and those pillars are not compressional they're tensile right so they're, they're actually they're holding tent they're holding yep. tension they're holding the two sides together um you could make them out of string uh, whereas you could not make a compressive uh compressive pillar out of sp- out of string it would just collapse mm-hmm. um yep so but instead of instead of like a a complete air mattress just imagine you've got the top half of an air mattress uh, and then around the edges you kind of uh, integrate it with some kind of membrane that's anchored into the ground Uh, and then in between where where the tensile columns are you have uh, anchors that are piles driven into the ground that allow you to transfer the load uh the tensile load of of steel cables uh into into the ground so essentially just making sure that the anchors end up underneath many many tons of rock and that way you don't have to pick up the rock and put it on top where it would block the light you can just leave it where it is and all you have to be able to do and that's uh, it's as easy as this um is is drive a bunch of anchors into the ground at regular intervals probably every you know 100 feet or so um that are able to connect to um to steel tensile cables that then run upwards vertically to a um a transparent plastic you know, reinforced uh, perfluoroethylene. Um, I think it's a uh, PTFE um, uh, membrane, which is a material that's routinely used in in building flexible um, roof structures here on mm-hmm. Earth because it's yeah. UV UV resistant and water resistant, um, and uh, and you could uh, reinforce it with um, with some kind of fiber fiber material to um, to prevent material creep over time. Uh, which is also a standard standard production practice here on Earth for uh, boat sails and things like that, um, and and so the nice thing about that is that you know the marginal cost to enclose an additional you know uh, thousand square feet of land is really really low because th- there only needs to be a um a small um you know small anchor a couple of anchors put in um yep. and then and then a membrane that literally weighs you know a couple of kilograms per square Excellent. meter yep. uh, put in place instead of. You know, you want another thousand square feet of land. Well, now you've got to dig a hole 50 feet deep and a thousand square feet in area, or now you have to um, now now you have to like figure out how to how to produce you know a 10 10 meter thick layer of uh, of cement and and dirt uh, in order to cover that over. Um, and the nice thing about PTFE is it's transparent, so you can you can get light through it as well, which means you can you can grow plants and stuff inside, um, and you can get uh, greenhouse greenhouse heating of the interior as well, which will be important. And the nice thing about the tensile structure is that. Is that if you want to make the roof high you just need a bit more steel to make the cables longer mm-hmm. um, and so in principle you could have you know essentially this, this vaulted structure with uh regularly spaced vertical cables uh looking you know more or less like a gothic cathedral and the ceiling instead of being a, a rock or you know, a stone vault uh would be you know essentially a transparent window um and i'm not saying it would work flawlessly you'd have to have you know repair mechanisms and machinery and 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 internal man- uh manifolds and um, bulkheads in, in case of leaks and catastrophic failure and, and testing and so on. But this is why this is technology that needs to be developed and prototyped here on Earth. Um, there are already pressure supported structures here on Earth. So you can have like a pressure supported uh, gym roof or something like that. Um, but the pressure difference across those membranes is much, much lower here on Earth than it would be on Mars, where you'd need it. You need to actually pressurize the interior so you could breathe. And the same the same would go on the moon if you built one on the moon. On the moon, it's a bit more of a challenge to have a tensile structure because, again, micrometeoroid. Uh, impacts but and and also thermal cycling to an extent but um but uh you know you could you could certainly i could i could imagine for example having a a vaulted ceiling where where the 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 roof part is covered uh is covered with um covered with dirt to to provide the shielding but then the the uh the the perimeter of the area has has kind of a vertical wall that is exposed which is which is less vulnerable to impacts and and also if you are building on the pole of the moon um then then all the stuff you'd want to look at which is like the ecliptic the sun the earth um would be you know within a few degrees of the horizon anyway it wouldn't really be overhead mm-hmm. um so anyway it's just some just some random ideas and i don't i don't claim to have like the final word on this but but certainly if i'm thinking like well you know i'm in the business of of encapsulating millions and millions of square feet i want my roof to be really really light and really really cheap so i think tensile tensile plastic membranes probably uh, instructive there, but that's, it certainly needs to be developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the ninth point is surface activity suits, which are, it's a fancy word for spacesuits that you'd use on the surface of a planet. Um, and actually there was just NASA just announced a three and a half billion dollar development contract with, um, Axiom and Collins, I think, uh, yeah. aerospace, which are two private companies in the US to build the next generation of spacesuits for Artemis after their own internal programs kind of flamed out in various ways. Um, but, um, <clears throat> basically suits are really complicated they're really hard to make um there's been probably a dozen different different kinds designed over the years um and, and they're they and they really, really suck no yeah. they're incredibly expensive but they they all really really suck in their own way as well uh some of them suck in different ways but um but like they're just ex- extraordinarily limited in, in what they're able to do and 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 what they have to do is ex- is also extremely broad they have to do all kinds of really complicated things in order to work properly so um and just to, to I add, think it's just
0: some. for this, uh, I've spoken, we've spoken to, not I, we, we have spoken to hmm. several uh, people engaged in this type of activity. And you're looking at a $12 million suit, 2,000 hours to make a glove, uh, there's an interchangeable. That's like one
1: person for a full year.
0: Right. And that, then there's 2, a, hours. there is, but it's multiple disciplines. So it's even more than that. There are. Yeah. then the way it's modulized is you have your hands fit your hands and your your lengths of arms but bodies and cases are interchangeable so you don't need to have 12 million per person but when you get to a certain scale you're actually reusing different components to be able to fit that individual but there's a guy hmm. and i think it's a, I think it's university of north dakota uh, he's working on a completely different structure. He, his goal is to take that two thousand hours and bring it down to a, a cost variable that will be two hundred to five hundred dollars to make those gloves as compared to yeah. the the numbers that we're talking about here. And it is a huge challenge, and I bring up paragon because they just purchased the uh, a spacesuit company. Because they—that's just on my mind. So we've talked to a few of them in turn as to what progress they've made, and you can't have fifty thousand people, or if you did need
1: twenty thousand suits, just think of that supply chain yeah. challenge. It's just—I well, think in practice, most people would not be in spacesuits most of the time. Um, I agree with you because you know they'd, they'd live inside the terrarium, and the terrarium would be enormous. Yeah. You know, like ten miles wide, kind of. Of thing. But if you are um, like having 100,000
0: 100, or 200,000 people and you need 20,000 mm-hmm. suits and you need and you add on and then you have to emergency evacuation suits, there's a complexity to these numbers no matter how you play it.
1: Yeah, I'm saying like probably everyone would have their own suit. They might not use it all that much, but yes, yeah. you don't want to be $12 million each. So this cheap, the suits need to be cheaper, which means they need to be easier to make. Ideally, they'd be field maintainable. Um, but they also need to work better. I mean, like current spacesuits are super heavy and, and super hard to use. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, that's why one of the, one of the reasons the image of like an astronaut digging a hole with a shovel, wearing a spacesuit is ridiculous because, because like wearing a spacesuit is like having a person giving you a bear hug, trying to stop you do what you're doing the whole time while you're also <laughs> yeah. carrying them. Yeah. Um, and also making you like hot and sweaty and eating all your oxygen for you. Uh, so, so I think, you know, if you, if you go to, um. If you go to the the museum at, uh, at Catalina, um, uh, Santa Catalina Island off the coast of uh, Los Angeles, where Jacques Cousteau and his friends basically did all the development for scuba diving. You can see like they went through probably 30 or 40 or 50 different iterations in terms of how scuba systems were designed to the point where now they're basically, you can rent them and they cost a couple hundred bucks and yep. they'll work more or less flawlessly for an entire career and they have to work flawlessly and, and they can be operated by idiots as I can attest, um, and and they they work really nicely. But the problem with spacesuits is that spacesuits are about as sophisticated in terms of the development of modern scuba systems as like an uh, antique diving bell or something would be. They're just like we just haven't gone through those 50 iterations of technology yet to get to something that actually works really, really well um and is and is usable and cheap. Uh and so you know, a lot of work is needed to be done there. Um and you can be really clever and maybe, maybe skip 10 of those generations um by by being super clever. Um, but but at the end of the day, I think we just need to like serious We're, money needs to be invested in like solving this problem long-term. So that the suit is less like a spacecraft that you strap on and more like a pair of car you know, like, like, you know, heavy overalls that you put on and basically it does a job for you.
0: I, I agree completely. Yeah. I, I'm trying to look at, because of the, the zoom stopping, I'm, I, I have three computers in front of me right now and I'm trying to look up the university. I think it was university of North Dakota or Pablo de Leon. I believe is his name, and he is working on a new type of approach to addressing exactly what you're talking about. Creating an iteration where you don't, you you can have a repairable suit. You don't need the the thousands of hours to create just a glove, and bringing down that cost variable. So there are people out there working on this. It's we're far from it, as you said, thirty to forty iterations for Jack Cousteau. We're uh, we're not far enough along to make that cost effectiveness, and that's your number nine. So it makes
1: sense. Right. Yeah, so that's the that's the ninth the ninth kind of requirement. And, you know, I've got some random ideas there, but they're probably not very good. But um, yeah, it's it's certainly something that needs to be done. Uh, it needs to be done sooner rather than later. Um, and you know, especially if you want to have humans being able to go outside and walk around, even just you know for fun, if not for work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you could you could imagine a situation where you have giant airlocks and you bring all the machines in and you work on them in a shirt sleeves environment, and and no one ever goes outside. And that's more or less how submarines are operated for example. Yep. Um, although some submarines do carry divers but those divers are not typically used for maintaining the submarine. Um, but um, yep. yeah, I mean like for example, like the Russian typhoon class um, strategic ballistic nuclear missile submarine uh, has an operating depth of 900 meters. So even if they wanted to, they wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't be able to put uh, divers <laughs> on you're the You're not gonna put a
0: person outside to be doing some repair work. <laughs> we, yeah, we, no, not the atmosphere Our our, our,
1: blink, our blinker is out. And I need you to go out and change the bulb. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can, you, can you please go and repaint the letters on the side of the hole? Yeah, right, it's, it's wearing back. off a little bit. Like anglerfish wear- and right. squids and things. Yeah, we're going to um, come up. Actually, in a, whales dive down that deep.
0: Yeah, we're going to yeah. come up in a, in about two months. We want to look good, so can you please put a coat of that special paint on to make us look a little shinier when we get up? Yes, it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, um,
1: some whales dive that deep actually, which is pretty extraordinary. Like from a physiological point of view, but um, but yeah, it's it's. But yeah, I think I think having the ability to operate out, outs, out outside of enclosures and outside of vehicles is, you know, it's just important on a psychological basis as well as you know potentially it's a technical shortcut. But the current generation of spacesuits is not up to the challenge. In, not right. up to it.
0: Uh, while you started, were going through this list, one of the questions that yes. came to mind, and I, I, yes. you probably heard or at least because you've listened to enough podcasts you probably heard some of the things that i've said why in your head do you not should we as humans and the why do you work on this why do you think it should be done why do you see the value in it because you, you thought a lot about it what what is it for you
1: well it's kind of a hobby for me for a long time um I've, i spend a lot less time thinking about it now than i used to but we all need escapism um, and you know, I was, I've always been really inspired by, uh, science fiction, um, stuff. I actually met Robert Zubrin when I was nine years old and, and read his books and was like, that'd be neat. And then, um, and then when I came of age, technically, I decided to read them with my, you know, red, red pen in hand and redo all these calculations and, and see what I thought about them for myself. And you know, they're mostly, is mostly like on the right track. It's fine. Like, like he and I, we, we, we know each other collegially now as well, but, um, which is kind of amazing. Like as a as a kid growing up in a remote part of Australia, like kind of getting to meet these people, but also like what SpaceX is doing, I find super inspiring. Um, and and so for you know, kind of started out trying to reverse engineer what they were doing on the inside, trying to anticipate what they're up to, and then um, and then you know, I was lucky enough to get to meet some of the people involved, and and uh, sometimes they'd ask me questions, and I'd think about it for a while and write a blog or write a book about it, and and um, see if I can just you know, in in my own way you know, improve the quality of the discourse and, um, you know, increase the signals noise ratio and, and, and maybe even potentially have an insight or two that might help. The,
0: uh, I, I love the, the framework or the, the way you approach many of the questions that you're, you bring up. And the, the last one that I, I've saved for the end, just because I thought it was, because of the way in which you speak and not the, uh, the accent, but the way in which you frame things. Is it your belief or desire, or is it just a a challenge that you, this escapism and hobby that are you, we need to, Mars is the the next place and that's the solution and that's where we need to go, is moon to you. And I'm trying to say this as, how do you say, as sterile as possible, because I'd like to hear where you're coming from, if that makes sense.
1: Well, I mean, I think for a long time, there was this kind of zero-sum mentality uh, driven by senior bureaucrats at NASA and, and sometimes presidential administrations uh, that would kind of say, we'll go to Mars, we'll go to the moon, we'll go to Mars, we'll go to the moon. And actually, we've gone to neither of them. <laughs> and we're not really on track to go to either of them at this rate. Um, but the nice thing about Starship is that it lets you go to both and at basically the same marginal cost, because um, you can only go to Mars every two years. So in the in-between time, you may as well go to the moon. And And the thing is, the Starship means that you can build a base on the moon that looks and feels and operates like a large Antarctic station, like McMurdo Station with a thousand people without much difficulty, right? Whereas without a starship, even a base of like four people on the moon that's occupied for three weeks of a year is basically impossible. It just, it, it, you know, people have been trying to square that circle for for, for decades and they haven't solved it. Um, it's one of these things where, like I was describing before, in the context of techn- technological and population collapse, but but in this case it's 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 slightly less dire. But even so, you say, well, we have a system we want to build it. Well, it weighs too much. Well, we'll make it weigh less. We'll take out some of the parts. Uh, but now you know, in order to make the remaining parts work well, they have to weigh more. So they still weigh too much. Okay, we'll make it really really clever. Now it costs too much. You know, mm-hmm. and and uh, the the technical phrase is it, the system does not close. You know, once once you once you kind of you know go on this merry-go-round of like updating all the requirements for each different subsystem as you change the previous one in order to solve the previous problem. You know, hopefully over time you converge on a solution that works and that that's more or less how aircraft are designed um but but in the case of like moon bases with existing rockets and existing budgets and existing technical suites and existing levels of ambition it doesn't work but with starship it can work it can you know that a lot of those problems go away so, so i think we can do, we can do both the moon and we can do mars i think uh it makes more sense to try and do a big city on mars than on the moon um but you could easily do a big city on both places if you really wanted to if you had to pick one you do, you do do Mars. And I think the really compelling thing is if you can solve or at least get close to solving the autarky problem, the Mm self-sustaining problem on Mars, you can solve it in Iceland easily, right? (laughs) By by extension from our discussion, right? And Mm -hmm. if Iceland is able to be technologically self-reliant for everything, that means basically any city on earth, like, you know, Columbus, Ohio can be self-reliant. Birmingham, Alabama can be self-reliant. And I think that, you know, it would certainly have complications as far as uh, geopolitics and, and and so on go, uh, if if the smaller cities were able to be self-reliant. But I think it would be a net a huge net positive. Um, because you know, essentially you, you alleviate scarcity uh, for for all humans everywhere. Um and we think about what do we want our future to look like. It's a lot more like the Star Trek where there's where there's no scarcity, really. At the the um, age of infinite. The um, age of infinite scarcity. The age of it, Which is something it. that you've discussed with other people on this, on this podcast. Yeah. But you know, how do we get to how do we get to the age of infinite? We need the ability to more or less seamlessly, with relatively low overhead and input and complexity, uh, convert generic materials, um, dirt, and you know stuff you can find in the backyard, essentially, and solar power into any material you could possibly want. And um, you know, right now we're at the we're at the point as a civilization with by by building these extremely large organizational structures, like nation states, essentially. We're able to organize very, very large groups of people to build machines that are extremely specialized and high performance. And you know, think about you know uh, a seven eight seven aircraft or something like that—basically, miracle, miracle machine—and um, uh, and that's great. But at the same time, we also need to make efforts to compactify the industrial stack so that we don't run out of people. You know, like yeah, um, if we want to go on making amazing things and more amazing things and more capable things, we need to figure out how to do more with fewer people. Um, and that also means that we can have greater diversity. You know, like right now, there's really only two major aircraft manufacturers, like large large aircraft manufacturers. Mm-hmm. There's, there's Boeing and Airbus. Um, but if Birmingham, Alabama, is able to quote unquote make everything, you know, with their own local materials and energy supply, then then we're no longer kind of stuck in this world where where like tiny oligopolies control major, you know, major aspects of factors of production. Um, you know, we, we we may not want you know, Tampa, Florida to have the resources to build their own nuclear weapons. Um, but, you know, that's kind of one of the complications. Um, but, uh, and, and certainly some some degree of regulation would be necessary to avoid making aircraft that crash and kill everyone. But our current no, system- I, I like how you put that either. Yeah, I like how you use Tampa. You
0: didn't use um, Cairns. You didn't use Melbourne. You didn't use-
1: <laughs> Well, Canberra. Canberra for starters should just be walled off and, you know, um, but the- <laughs> the getting power., yeah. <laughs> um, that's I'm, I'm from Australia. No no I mean, no, that's why I said it because that's why, think, Cairns, like, that's why I use cans. that's why I use Melbourne. What makes that's Brisbane. What makes the great cities great? You know, what makes the great cities great? you know and 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 would it would it make them less or more great if they're able to do more stuff, you know within their own limits and and their people there were able to have access to cheaper materials and cheaper energy. and so, And that's kind of what is possible, right? If you can build a city on Mars with a million people that is self-sustaining, and to be fair, those people are highly trained, like but it wouldn't be that it wouldn't be a stretch to do it with 10 million here on earth and that it just make a huge difference i think and i i don't know if you
0: realized it, but you quite literally took using the using the innovations the paradigm shifting thinking and the endeavor and turning it back on earth to improve how we live on earth for all species because we're not just about humans in project moona huh? you actually just did that i don't know if you consciously thought about it But you took exactly what our framework is, solve for X, add those complexities in there, create the network effect that happens, accelerate the innovations, create enough of them to be able to reduce the cost, the load, the the access to it, then translate that back to a different human existence or a different planetary existence over a period of time, which also accounts for behavioral political, economic conditions that will allow for a different
1: future. You, you just said it. I don't know if you did and realize that. Well, it, it could be said that I've been on a podcast once or twice before and did my homework <laughs> and stay on brand. Stay on, brand. But, stay on um, point, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, on I'll make it look accidental.
0: Yeah, okay, um, yeah. No, so, yeah, it, 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 it's it's fascinating. And I I've got to say that when I first you have an unbelievable breadth of knowledge. There's a lot of guests we've had who've had this. And you brought up Zubrin, fantastic interview, only because I don't hear him do a lot of moon-type related work. He's, uh, he, You know that interview went in, in a direction I don't think
1: I planned. I don't know if he planned it. No, it was good. It was good because Zubrin obviously has done a lot of talks over the years and a lot of them are publicly available. But um, but you know, it's it's fairly unusual to get him uh talking or most of these people are professional communicators kind of um talking about stuff that you haven't heard before uh, one way or another. And um and so yeah, I, I, I credit that that interview and, and the questions to kind of really digging into some of the questions that I think I think uh you know uh, Dr. Zubrin would enjoy um thinking about some more probably if, he, it, if was, also, it was you know, it was fascinating. Up it was in the much.
0: Yeah, some yeah. of these have been and um Jeffrey Mamber. Jeffrey Mambers yes. interview was fascinating to hear some of the things that I, people saying, I, I didn't know this about him, but his, his construct and his belief structure, where it comes from and how they've, he's evolved is fascinating. <laughs> so I, I'm going to say that Casey, when Andreas and the, Andreas in uh, Germany had said, you were top on the list that gave me that sign of approval that we needed to have you on. And I'm going to I know this is public, it doesn't make a difference. We're all working on what we're doing together, is uh, if you're willing to explore and see, most of what we do is not out in the general public. You know that. Uh, most people say, I, can't, I don't even know about you. I can't find anything on you. That's okay. We have uh, uh, Dan Dumbacher, who's running the, he's the executive director of the American Institute for Astronautics and Aeronautics. There's nothing out there but I see all these people you're talking to. I'd like to expand and offer that we'd spend a little bit of time because I think your questioning the way you think is, is amazing. It's incredible. And you have have such a depth of and breadth of knowledge that if you want to explore more with project moon hut and it's not project moon hut per se, as you've heard, there's more. And I'd love to see how, not a full-time job, not looking at that in terms of the way I'm thinking, I'm thinking of, I believe that you'd be able to find opportunities. We're here to solve. We're not looking for people to tell us we can't do it. We're not, because that's okay, do something else. We are not your game, that's fine. But we're looking for people like yourself who have the ability to look at things completely differently. And I'm fascinated
1: by the way you think, so. um, That's very kind of you. Um, I'm of course curious to learn more and um, and, uh, very, very happy to be asked. so we'll see if we can we can fit it in. But,
0: no, we'll we'll f- um, fit it in. It's it's not a rush type thing, but you've heard we <laughs> yeah. have KPMG, Deloitte, PwC, EY, White & Case, Maples Group. These are law firms, accounting firms. We have J.P. Morgan Private Banking took us on. Carta's doing things for us, which is the this the um, you heard the name Carta. I'm assuming because of where you were located. Yeah, I use them. Yeah, yeah, you've used them. We have uh, we have companies that you would never have anticipated working with us because their skill set is not beyond earth. Their skill set is something you need. You need to set up an account. You need, J, and you can get JP Morgan private banking to help you, not because it's that, it's that they're giving us the suite of services. And we have Microsoft gave us a hundred seats because we're a 501c3. We're looking for different types of individuals who can help us to create a new future. And it's something that it sounds like, even with your answer that you gave is, You have you have children, you're looking for your children to have a newer different life. And we're hoping that tomorrow will be a better day. And that's the six mega challenges, which you've also heard about. So again, I fascinated, I absolutely loved having you, I I appreciate meeting you. And so I want to thank everybody out there in the world today who is listening in. I, I sincerely hope you learned something today that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Again, Project Moon Hut Foundation is we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut. We're not about settlement, colonization, science. We're about changing the, the future. Through that, through the accelerated development of an earth and space-based ecosystem, then to take the in uh, the innovations and the paradigm shifting thinking, and then to turn everything from that, to turn the endeavor back on earth, to improve how we live on earth for all species. And website, videos, top right-hand corner, projectmoonhot.org, you will see they're not Project you're not. If you watch them, you're not, you're not going to walk away saying, oh my God, I understand it. That's what we use as the intro. If you're interested in taking the next step and talking to us, we have people texting us, working with us all over the world from, from Asia to um, EMEA, which is Europe, Middle East, uh, Africa, all through the Americas. So we're looking for you to, for anybody listening in. So with you, Casey, What's the best way to get a hold of you?
1: Uh, usually, Twitter is a, a safe place to find me. So I'm at CJ Handmer, uh, Charlie Juliet Hotel Alpha November Delta Mike Echo Romeo um, on, uh, on Twitter. You can find me there. Oh, that's perfect. And
0: for any of you who are listening in, I'd love to connect with you. You can reach me at david at moonhut.org. You can connect with us at at Project Moon Hut on Twitter or at Goldsmith if you want to get me directly. Uh, LinkedIn, we have a small group. We're we're not a big marketing group. We're not trying to. We're trying to find the right people who can help us. We are on Facebook, uh, Instagram, so there's many different ways that anybody can reach out to us. So that said, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.